That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast. A production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. So I reached out to a bunch of people in the Pac-12 conference today as part of my morning and just kind of took the temperature on the next college football season. Oregon State telling me that in the week after Trent Bray was hired as head football coach or promoted as head football coach, that it took more than 100 deposits for new season tickets, which was kind of encouraging because I think in the wake of that, you know, Jonathan Smith stopping off at Goodwill. A lot of Beaver fans kind of dismayed over what happened in the Pac-12. In the wake of that, like 100 people going, yeah, we're going to buy some season tickets. I don't know if that is two or three or five or seven season tickets when they make a deposit, but they got more than 100 deposits for new season tickets. That was encouraging. Now, season ticket renewals at Oregon State started in January. Sarah Alcano, the Oregon State Deputy Athletic Director, told me that they're off to a great start, and they're ahead of where they were today in the sales cycle last year. Meanwhile, Washington State telling me that they're still too early to tell. Athletic Director Pat Chun told me this morning they're awaiting the announcement from the Mountain West Conference on their schedule and dates before they can really make a better assessment on sales. They're going to need about four to six weeks sample size. Washington State fans playing a little bit of wait and see. And for people who don't know the Mountain West Conference, while they have announced the football matchups for next season, like Air Force will play Oregon State, so will Colorado State, so will um, so will uh, UNLV, San Jose State, uh, Nevada, Boise State, San Diego State. They'll all play Oregon State, but we don't know. Nobody knows what day and what time those games will kick off. Nobody knows what network they'll be on. So I think it does become difficult for people who are going, hey, I want to make some plans. I don't want to buy season tickets and then come to find out, hey, I can't make like half the games. So there's a little bit of a wait and see for Oregon State. Washington State will play Mountain West Conference games against San Jose State, Utah State, Wyoming, and Hawaii at home. They'll go on the road at uh, San Diego State, Boise State, New Mexico, and Fresno State. But I think a lot of wait and see between Oregon State and Washington State fans. Meanwhile, you might wonder how Washington and Oregon are doing. And I reached out to the University of Oregon this morning to find out kind of where they are as it pertains to their season tickets and how they're trending, how they're tracking. And uh, Oregon is saying that uh, their renewal rate is at 95.2%. That is the highest since after the 2010 season. 
And new ticket sales will not begin until March 4th, but uh, they have about 5,000 deposits from potential new season ticket holders. So uh, Oregon looking at a potential windfall when it becomes when it comes down to season tickets. Now I would not I would caution you not to get too carried away making any judgments positive or negative. Kind of nod your head, nod a little bit, and uh, ask yourself what Oregon and uh, Washington and Oregon State and Washington State are uh, frankly looking at what and what are fans waiting for and waiting to see. I'm particularly interested in what fans at Oregon State and Washington State are waiting to see. But I think, you know, the move to the Big Ten Conference, while it probably doesn't work for all of the Olympic sports, while it doesn't work for a lot of people who like to follow the golf team or the volleyball team or the softball team or the baseball team, it appears to be working for the football team. 503-417-7575. I want to hear from you. If you are a season ticket holder at Oregon State, Washington State, Oregon, Washington, do you have season tickets even to um, you know any of the college programs in the state, Portland State, University of Portland as it pertains to basketball, are you a season ticket holder? Uh, what are you looking for? What do you need to see? What makes you want to buy in? Because I think there's a certain faction of consumer who's going to buy in no matter what. And there's another faction of consumer who is waiting to see something or be moved by something. Clearly, Oregon's move to the Big Ten has caused some people to go, hey, I want to see the, I want to see some Big Ten opponents in Autzen Stadium. And so they're going to line up and, and get season tickets. Oregon State fans, uh, you know, are saying, hey, Trent Bray gets hired as the coach. Uh, that's a good thing. I can get behind that, uh, you know, moving in that direction. But I want to know from a personal standpoint, what moves you to buy season tickets? And I know it's become a more difficult thing in recent years. And we've seen Oregon struggle a little bit to sell those season ticket packages, in particular because it's hard to get opponents to come to Autzen Stadium. Kickoff times have been bad. Fans have figured out they can go and buy, uh, you know, the games a la carte, the game they want here or there on StubHub, and buy a game here or game there. Uh, but you tell me, what are you looking for? What are you waiting for as it pertains to season tickets? I also want to rope the Blazers into this conversation. Because somebody pointed out to me this morning that you can get Blazers tickets for some of the remaining games on their schedule for a dollar. Now, if you're a season ticket holder, you probably hear that and you slap your forehead because you paid more than a dollar for those tickets. But I want to know, from a Blazers season ticket holder perspective, what matters to you? What moves the needle? Are you in no matter what? Or, like the college football fans, are you waiting to see something or hear something to become re-engaged? 503-417-7575. Great show for you today. Uh, we're going to take a trip down memory lane, go a little nostalgic in hour one. Doug Tamro, who is the uh, Deputy Athletic Director at Arizona State, he is in charge of media relations, longtime media relations guy. Uh, he has been tweeting a lot about the final Pac-12 game as Arizona State knows it. He's been tweeting a lot about Bill Walton calling the game. Walton is on tap this week to call the game if healthy. Walt- Walton is questionable for Thursday's uh, Arizona State game as he is uh, apparently uh, under the weather. And so there's some concern that Walton will miss the final Pac-12 game that he is supposed to call in Tempe. Uh, later in the program, Tyson Alger, the I-5 corridor, he'll go up and down I-5 talking sports. It'll be sort of a 
cornucopia of topics ranging from the Ducks, the Blazers, the Beavers, and the Timbers, and a whole bunch more. We'll talk with Tyson Alger in Hour 2. 503-417-7575 is the phone number. I want a lot of calls today, a lot of feedback. What are you looking for as a consumer? There's no wrong answer. You tell me. Are you waiting to see something before you'll buy in and buy season tickets? Have you decided, no, I'm not. it's not for me, and it never will be for me? If so, why? Are you an Oregon fan who is now saying, hey, because they're playing in the Big Ten, I want to go see some of those games? Only you can speak for yourself and your household. It's your disposable income, but I want to hear about it. You tell me at 503-417-7575. Stephen, help me out here. What do you think motivates people? Clearly some Oregon fans are on board with the Big Ten conference thing. I think for me, uh, I think most most fans are going to be on board with winning. If your team is successful and your team is winning, that's what's going to be the biggest motivator. Now, I think for Oregon's case, they take on a Big Ten schedule, and it's something different, something they haven't seen before. So I, I, I do wonder, John, how many years into this Big Ten conference relationship the Ducks have with them, how long that takes, like, that wears off. Be like, oh, we get to see Ohio State again? Well, we saw them, you know, three or four years ago. Like, is it really that big of a deal? Do I need to be there? I, I, I do wonder that. Like, it's just this, the newness of it. I think that maybe wears off in a couple of years. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it does. Um, but for me, like, it's all about winning. And then that would be my main thing. I, I want to see a successful team before I'm willing to shell over my hard-earned dollars to go support the team. So, you know, me as a Blazer fan, like, I would never get season tickets at this point in in, in, in their uh, what they're doing right now because they're just not winning on the court. They're not showing me any signs of improvement in that circumstance. But I, I also think that there's a lot of people – in Eugene, a lot of people here in Portland for the Blazers, like they're just diehards. They're going to go there no matter what. And I think Oregon State's in that boat where they're just buying into Trent Bray. They're buying into the program. They're buying into they want to be relevant still. And so I think there's a lot of different circumstances for all these different teams in the area. But for me, John, number one, it's all about winning, man. If you can provide a winner, I'm going to support your product and I'm going to watch every single game. Yeah, and I think I was a little surprised at the report from Oregon. I guess I shouldn't be. Because I think the move to the Big Ten Conference is fueling the entire, you know, it is entirely based around football. And so football is where you're going to see a huge uptick. And new season ticket sales for the Oregon Ducks football will begin on March 4th, as I said. There have been 5,100-plus paid deposits from potential new season ticket holders. That is nothing to to uh, to scoff at. Like, that, that's a big number. And so... Well, you know, everybody else might be saying, you know, this doesn't work. It was terrible for nostalgia. It was bad for the baseball and the softball program. This isn't going to be fun to see them traveling. I have to think Oregon is sitting back right now going 5,000 new paid deposits from potential new season ticket holders. Um, that's what they signed up for by moving to the Big Ten. Let's go to the phones. Bruce is in Portland. Bruce, uh, help us out. Where do you stand on this topic? Hey, John, I've got a couple things to say. First, I am a Duck season ticket holder. My family has been a season ticket holder since Austin Stadium was built in the late 60s, so I've been through thick and thin. Um, I am in it regardless. I'm, you know, probably a whole bunch of us are this way. Uh, with only five or six home games, it's it's not just winning. Um, it's, it's a social thing. You know, you go down there, you spend the day, you tailgate, you see friends that you haven't seen, you know, for years, or you see them once a year at a duck game. Um, it, it's just the whole 
package, okay? The team winning, yes, helps. But, uh, you know, and, and it's a great venue, um, and it's uh, I'll probably continue to hold on to them regardless of what happens down the road. I was also a season ticket holder for the Timbers since day one, since they became an MLS team, you know, and that was the hottest show in town for the first 10 years of their existence. Uh, the problem with the Timbers, uh, they got 20, 25 home games. It's uh, sometimes difficult to make it to all of them. And as you were saying earlier, the secondary market resale, you can't get your face value for them. Um, it's just not worth it for me to, to do Timbers anymore. You know, the product on the field's kind of gone downhill the last couple of years, but that's not really why. It's mainly the secondary market and trying to off your tickets when you really? can't go to a game. It's cheaper to go, for me, to pick and choose games and buy them, you know, outside of a season ticket package. Um, but in regards to the Ducks, uh, I'm here to stay. And Washington State fans, I don't know what you're waiting for. There's not a whole lot going on in Pullman in the fall time other than the other than the coup. So get on board and support your team, guys. That's it. Yeah. I, I think the Washington State fan, first of all, felt a little disenfranchised, maybe more so than any fan base in the Pac-12. I mean, Oregon State's right there with them, but I think Washington State, to a larger extent, was kind of watching what was unfolding and going, um, you know, is there any way that Pullman, Washington, is ever going to register in the way that, that uh, you know, the major conferences need it to register? And it, fair or not, that's the reality of realignment. And, you know, my friend John Wilner calls it a rock fight. He's not wrong. It is kind of a rock fight when it as it pertains to, um, you know, the realignment uh, realities. And so... Uh, I think the Washington State fan probably knows it can come in late and get tickets. I think it was probably so turned off by the landscape and what had happened, maybe Oregon State fans to an extent as well, that you know it's it kind of looks at um, what is going on and is really dismayed. I also think that um, you know the Mountain West Conference delay in getting uh, the season set up has not helped the Washington State uh, effort to uh, to sell uh, tickets because I think uh, in the end, you know, I, as I'm uh, communicating with Pat Chun this morning, I don't think it's frustration necessarily, but I think the reality of it is is that the Washington State uh, uh, ticket office is, you know, wait, sitting around waiting for uh, the Mountain West Conference to figure out when it's going to release its schedule so that it can really start making that push um, and, and here's the other thing, like, I think there's a potential for some bandwagon activity as it pertains to Washington state and Oregon state. If those schools can figure out ultimately how to compete, how to access the playoff, I think, uh, you know, I think there will be a, a, a much larger push as it pertains to getting those schools, uh, season tickets going. But, um, Oregon state saying it's ahead of where it was. Uh, Washington State saying it really hasn't got going, and Oregon saying it's got rocket fuel right now on that season ticket effort is uh, awfully interesting you, to me. Do you think that some of it has to do with, like Corvallis and Eugene? I know Eugene is bigger than Corvallis, and it's more of a you know more of a city than Corvallis. But when you look at Pullman and Seattle, like I think doesn't Washington State kind of just see the writing on the wall? Like we're not getting into a big time conference unless Washington takes us. Where I think with Corvallis and Oregon State, they look at Eugene and they look at Oregon and they say, 
well, if Eugene can be in a big conference, can't we? Like, is there that kind of hope? That's what I kind of get the sense of. I, I kind of wonder. I mean, I wonder if, you know, it, it, the reality is the media market of Eugene and the media market of Corvallis are the same, like in the eyes of the rest of America. that There's no difference. In the proximity to Portland, people who argue one's closer, one's not close. It doesn't really matter. They're, neither one of them is immediately adjacent. Uh, people will say, well, there's more Oregon State fans in, in the biggest city, Portland, more alumni in the biggest city. That doesn't seem to matter as much to the media companies. So when you start looking at you know Oregon State and, and Oregon, you go, okay, they're the same except for what? Except for Phil Knight, except for the branding and Nike. And that's the difference. And that's why I, I said it earlier in the week. I, I really think that Oregon State has got to be really careful and very deliberate about what it does uh, as it pertains to the uh, the the decision to market and brand the programs right now. You have the platform, you have people watching you. It it you know I I get it. Oregon State hasn't traditionally branded itself in a way that uh, in a way that uh, makes a splash, but Oregon State needs to recognize more people than ever are looking at it and. I think they need to do some things that are a little outside of their their normal convention. I think they need to get busy living, so to speak. The Blazers, though, at a dollar a ticket, this is embarrassing. And I don't mean to pile on the Blazers. They're an easy target. They're they're like, you know, when back in the day we'd watch Marlon Perkins on uh, Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Uh, yeah, I'm dating myself. But we, we'd watch the wildebeest crossing the stream. The Blazers are the slow, old wildebeest crossing the stream right now they're an easy target they're very easy to make fun of to pick on some of it's fair some of it's not but when you have a season you have a ticket model where you ask season ticket holders to buy on and invest in the product and then the product's so bad that on february the 27th there are tickets listed for a dollar or two dollars or four dollars uh on StubHub and other secondary resellers that to me is a slap in the face of your season ticket holders. And and really, I mean, outside of the people who just say, hey, I'm going to sign on every year, I'm going to buy tickets every season, I'm going to support this whether they win or lose, I kind of wonder. I kind of wonder what's there for season ticket holders as it pertains to the Blazers. And I wonder what motivation they are giving people to renew or not renew. Coming up, we're going to go to Tempe, Arizona. Doug Tamro. He is a deputy AD at Arizona State. He's got some stories for you. He joins us next. They have put up a mini Bill Walton shrine in the media room. Tomorrow will be Arizona State's last Pac-12 home basketball game in men's basketball. Bill Walton expected to be on the call on the Pac-12 network. Uh, we'll be talking with Doug Tamro, who is the Deputy Athletic Director at Arizona State, coming up in a minute here. I mentioned this yesterday, but I want to talk about this just for a second more. I am uh, really interested in figuring out what Peter King is going to do next. Monday morning quarterback Peter King is has become an installment for a whole bunch of of people who follow the NFL, who follow um, all of the inner and outer workings of the NFL, and who just like good reporting. Peter King announcing this week that he's retiring. 
says he wants to know what it feels like to be bored. Um, I uh, I think everybody kind of looks forward to that until they encounter that. So I, I you know I I don't I'm not going to say this is like a professional athlete trying to retire who can't get away from the game, but kind of think the guy's going to end up writing a book or doing something and ending up back doing something around the NFL and sports. Our next guest is a senior associate athletic director at Arizona State. He's a big Steelers fan. He is a father. He is a husband. He is the uh, the keeper of the records at Arizona State as it pertains to so- sports media. Doug Tamro joining us live via satellite from Tempe. What's it like there today? John, it's 75 and sunny. You want to come down? <laughs> You're always recruiting. You're always recruiting. 75 and sunny, but I, I still got a pullover on because I'm a little cold. There's a wind chill down to 65. Does it make you soft when you live in that kind of weather? Do you, you know, as yeah. a, yeah. Yes, it does because because uh, when my friends back home in Pittsburgh see me like wearing this pullover, uh, they make fun of me because uh, I'm not steel or tough anymore when it comes to the weather. Do you have? Can you find like a sports bar that is filled with Steelers fans during football season, or how does that go for you? Harold Harold's Corral up in Cave Creek is one of the greatest sports bar, one of the greatest Steeler bars. They probably get about two thousand people in there on Sundays, and it's a wonderful experience to go up there. I watched them lose to the Browns up there this year, and that was a bad scene. And uh, you know when they showed our offensive coordinator on the screen, they booed him. So. Uh, it's it's a wonderful scene. Uh, Harold's Corral up in Cave Creek is the official great Steeler bar in, in Phoenix. I want to go down memory lane a little bit and get a little nostalgic, and I think you're the guy to do it with. Yeah. But I saw a picture on social media of the mini Bill Walton shrine uh, in the media room. Um, last Pac-12 home men's basketball game, Pac-12 Network drew it. Um, have, to, have to be a mixture of feelings. It, can you just talk about it a little bit from your perspective? Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, it, it's sad. It's frustrating, too. I mean, and it's not just this game, like the Arizona game being the last game, but, you know, it's the Cougs were in here Saturday, and, you know, they had a good team, and their fans were fired up. And, you know, I, I think back to when Clay Thompson, you know, came in here, and, you know, you watched Clay Thompson play in here. And, and I remember Clay Thompson didn't start the game in here because he was, like, late for the team bus. And, you know, you think back to those days of, you know, before these guys were superstars, you saw them take the field. Um, you know, it's it's just it just stinks. I mean, to be honest with you, football season was rough because we had the final Pac-12 Network road show. You know, you have Ashley Adamson and, you know, all that crew down here for the final time. And, you know, when you go down memory lane of all these events and, you know, athletes that you've seen compete, you know, they're gone. I mean, I, John, this is a, a interesting, like Eddie House and I, uh, you know, remain close. And, and one day we were talking and he's at the Pac-12 record. He tied Lou Alcindor's record, right? 61 points. And he said to me, am I, am I still a record holder? I mean, it's like, if there's no Pac-12, am I still a record holder? Yeah. And it's just a shame that those kind of things are going away. I mean, it's, it's, it's tough after 31 years, um, the, the, the friendships, I mean, I see some people from Oregon State and Washington State, you know, on the road, and you got to you sit there and wonder, will I see them again? I mean, I used to see them on road trips or at, or at the Pac-12 Media Day, and you know, you just sit there and wonder, I mean, what all has been lost? It's it's tough. You've been doing this since 1993. You were at Notre Dame, Cincinnati, very shortly. 
you, you go to Arizona State, you've seen James Harden there and Pat Tillman there and Jake Plummer there, Lou Dort, uh, John Rahm. Like, give, give me a James Harden story. When I say James Harden, what, what pops into your head? Um, you know, James, here's what's crazy. James, I actually tweeted this the other day, and it got some action because people didn't realize that James Harden was 5-0 and against Arizona. And the two teams he beat did make the tournament. It weren't like they were terrible teams. One of them made the Sweet 16. But he was 0-4 against Washington State. Because if you remember, James Harden was playing during those days. Tony Bennett was 0-4. So I know Tony – or Tony Bennett was 4-0. I know Tony Bennett won a national title, but he was also 4-0 against James Harden in college. Um, so it's kind of weird. I, I just remember James coming here, and Scott Perra was his assistant – was uh, his high school coach. Um, he came with him. And, you know, those two guys uh, were as tight as could be. And, you know, sometimes there's the old, you hire the guy to get the guy. And in our case with James Harden, one of the neatest things for me was Scott Perra was a coach on our staff who kept James um, going the right way and guided him and made him the number three pick. And now he's worth, you know, billion, a billion dollars or whatever he's making. And Scott's the head coach at, at Rice. So, when I see James Harden, I see a guy that was willing to take a chance and come to Arizona State um, at a time when you know no one else really was. It directly helped him become the number three pick in the draft. And then you know because of James Harden, I have one of my best friends in the in the business, and Scott Perra, who's at Rice now. So it, co- it kind of goes two ways. I remember those kind of memories, and then I got other memories that are personal. I I uh, my thought about Harden was I remember Nate McMillan, his kid Jalen, was on that team with with Harden. And I asked him, yeah. "How's your yeah. How's your kid doing?" And he's like, "You need to see this Harden kid, like you, like right. he's real." And so Nate could see that. Could you see that James Harden was going to be James Harden at that time, or was so, there still question? So here's my thought on James Harden. By the way, Jamel McMillan was the best post game interview of any top five post game interview of any student athlete. One time we brought him in for a post game. And after he was done, we were going to bring the coach in. And literally the media said, I'm not sure if we even need the coach. Jamel was good (laughs) enough. So uh, I love that kid. He was fantastic. James, I felt if he went to the right team, then he could do that. Now, I think what people forget about James is rarely are you the third pick in the draft and you come off the bench. And that's what happened with the Thunder uh, when he got picked. Had he gone number two to Memphis? Uh, where the big guy from UConn went, yeah, I don't yeah. know if James Harden would have been this good. I always thought that he was underrated as a passer. Um, I think he's a very smart player, and I knew that if he would get with the right guys, he could excel. And Kevin uh, Durant and Russell Westbrook are probably the right guys to get with coming out of college. I grew up in the Bay Area, and I watched a high school football game where Pat Tillman not only recovered an onside kick, he didn't fall on the ball. He just picked it up and he ran 65 yards the other way for the touchdown. Um, he was with that hair out the back of his helmet. Yeah. He goes he goes on to play at Arizona State. You were close with him. You were around during that time. What do you remember of Pat at Arizona State? Uh, you know what I remember, Pat, is um, he was an incredible example of a guy that could be a great leader but also a follower. On our 96 team, he was like the fifth or the sixth best interview, and he kind of just stayed in the background behind Juan Roque and Derek Rogers and Jake Plummer. Then his senior year, you know, we went 9-3. Um, and three. We had a really good year, and that's when he was Defensive Player of the Year. And a good story on Pat is his freshman year, he was at study hall. And, you know, when they used to have study hall, when he had to come in and 
his academic coach noticed he was kind of slacking off um, in his first, you know, the first couple of weeks and really wasn't doing much and kind of showing that he was bored. And the, he, you know, the academic teacher said, Pat, you know, I need you to be more focused. I need you to get it. And he said, well, I, I don't really need this. Like he was a 4.0 student. Like he doesn't really need to be here. And he, and he told the coach, like, I don't think I need to be here. And she told him, Pat, I need you to be here and be focused because they need to see you focused. And that was the other guys in the room. And Jill DeMichael told me the story, and she said from that moment on, the rest of the semester, he was one of the best student athletes she could ever ask for in a study hall. He he understood the value of being a role model and taking on leadership when he needed to. Were you surprised post-9-11 NFL Pat Tillman says, you know what, I uh, I need to go do that. Did it surprise you to see him serve his country? No, because um, when Paul Jensen was a PR director at the Cardinals, um, uh, and he called to tell me, and he said, hey, uh, you know, our guy's leaving, he's retiring. And I was like, oh, and I said, where's he going? He said, the Rangers. And I thought, wait, what? Like, what, what do you mean the Rangers? And I, then it was like the Army. I was like, Oh my God. And honestly, John, it just made sense. I mean, you can't, you know, you can't join the service at age 40 and, you know, he did something that just seems unheard of, but I tell you what's amazing is, you know, I've been on the, um, the Pat Tillman working with the Pat Tillman foundation and Pat's run that we do down here. And I was on the selection committee for the scholars one year, the amount of people that joined the military because Pat Tillman joined it. It's a lot. Um, a lot of the people that I meet, military, people that come and want to see the statue, you know, it's just not student-athletes or Arizona State people that were inspired by him. 20 years later, um, you know, if, if the starting point is when you pass away, your impact on people, I find it hard to believe as many people that have done more than Pat Tillman. Um, you know, I, I get it all the time, man. People email me or they'll, I want to get a picture with the statue, uh, military people, It's it's you know, before he was USA, he was ASU, and we are really proud of that. But it did not, when you look back, it did not surprise me because that's what needed to get done at that time. I think if he had not been killed in action, he would have been a candidate someday to be president. I think he was headed yeah. that way. I, <laughs> we could use him, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> yes. He's, he's kind of what we could we could use. Um it it it's amazing to me that you know i feel blessed like you know when we lose a game or we have a tough season or whatever people are, oh man it must be tough at arizona state and i you know i just kind of i'm like look man i i got to know pat tillman i'm good you know like we, we'll get through this losing season and all that and you know he's he was just that special i mean that's the thing about it we're it's amazing we're coming up on 20 years of him passing uh in april and in January of 04, I got to have dinner with him in Seattle. I was on a basketball trip. And, you know, he told me, when I'm out of here, I'll do whatever I want for Arizona State. So, you know, all the things we do, the numbers, uh, the statue, you know, some people will always say to me, you know, you think he'd really want this? And I'm like, you know, I, it's not that he would want it, but he'd be thankful for it. And he would be really appreciative of the fact that some people are just very, very inspired by his story 20, 20 years later. What's crazy for me is when – uh you know, you see a young uh, kid on a recruiting visit, and you know they'll they'll tweet or Instagram a photo, and they're right there with a the statue. So that's pretty cool impact to have. Love that, Doug Tamro, our guest, Arizona State Senior Associate Athletic Director. 
Bill Walton, um, I know he's iffy for the game. Do you have an update? Yeah. Is he? What's going to happen with Walton on this Pac-12 game? So we got Matt Muleblock on standby. Matt, of course, lives in Tucson, played for the Wildcats. And, um, Matt's one of my favorite uh, uh, analysts. He's, he's so awesome. I mean, just a great guy. And uh, Matt's probably going to be have to fill in if Bill can't make it. Bill's got a stomach flu. Uh, would love to have Bill because he just loves talking about not only ASU athletics or Arizona athletics, but he'll talk about everything, man. He just he, he dives <laughs> into everything. Um, I, the old days when Bill could get around a little better and we used to go on campus with a golf cart, those were some of the, the best days, man. You just drive around with Bill and – He'd be asking you questions about stuff you had no idea. And, you know, you'd take a notebook. And then when, when you go back to the office, he'd call the, off the uh, School of Sustainability and say, how many solar panels do we have? Because Bill asked. I finally got smart and had somebody else with more knowledge of the campus do the tour. And one of the years, it was Chris Pendleton, the uh, who's now at Oregon State, is the wrestling coach. Yeah, Chris took Bill on a tour of the campus. And obviously he knows more than I do because he's a coach and he's got to recruit. And Chris just had the time of his life. He showed Bill Walton around campus. So that that's my favorite tour guy, Chris Pendleton at Oregon State. This basketball season has been wild. And Arizona's lost to Washington State a couple times. You guys beat Washington State. I thought, you know, Bobby Hurley was as happy as he could be after that win the other night. Um, what do you expect in the conference tournament? You know... Well, I expect a lot of Arizona fans, and you know that's that's. I tell you what, John, it, it, that's one of the things that's going away that's just going to be so sad. That if the if there's something that the Pac-12 did right, and you know they've done a lot of things right, but like talk about a home run that Pac-12 tournament in Vegas. To think that's going to go away after this year, that's a real bummer, right? And I just think now this, you know, you think Arizona's still standing, but I do, I do follow college basketball pretty well. I've always been enamored with the bubble, and I don't really care who's a one, two, or three seed. I've just always been enamored with, you know, who gets in and why. I think somebody's going to play themselves in. I, I know it's a two-team league right now, um, for sure, with Washington State and Arizona, with Colorado, Utah, you know, or Oregon's lurking. Um, one of those teams is going to win three games, I think, and, and, and maybe play themselves into the tournament. Um, you know, Colorado's got to go to Oregon, Oregon State next week. Utah's in the mix. I just think somebody's going to step up, and I don't know if they're going to win it, but I think somebody's going to earn themselves a bit. Somebody asked me today what Bobby Hurley's like, and I and I pointed to a conversation I had with him several years ago in Vegas, Pac-12 tournament. It was Lou Dort had shot a three. It missed. I think Oregon beat you guys at the end. I packed up. I'm leaving the arena. Bobby Hurley must have gone and does, done his post game. I'm walking across the street, and I find him walking next to me. And he's kind of muttering and talking about the game. And I had a great conversation with him. And I, and I, I wish people could have seen that side of him. You've seen him, and you know him. What's Bobby Hurley like? Uh, first of all, he's a, he's a fantastic dad. And husband, he's raised three kids that are just absolutely wonderful, and have really, you know, I've watched them grow up. Um, he he's 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 super at that. He is very laid back. I know people get fired. You know, they he's easy to, to root against. That Bobby likes that, and he gets that. But he's just a, a very uh, 
easygoing guy off the court. I mean, he really is. When he has a question about something or he doesn't like the way maybe somebody said something, he'll ask me, I'll tell him, and he usually just rolls with it. Um, he's been a delight to be around, really. I mean, you know, sometimes he gets – sometimes people take shots, say we – we don't get good shots. Well, you know, we also make a lot of, you know, tough shots. You know, it, it, it's, it's how he gets players to play. They always play hard. Um, you know, he, I've, about seven years ago, he paid for my, my hotel bar tab and we won the next game. So I haven't had to pay for a drink since. Uh, then. Uh, poor guy. <laughs> he's, uh, he's wonderful at things like that. Um, you know, it, it's pretty cool, Joe, when you're sitting there with, with your buddies and, you get up at eleven o'clock after a game, and uh, you know the, the the you ask to tell the guy you're closing the tab, and randomly they say Bobby Hurley picked it up. You know what I mean? I mean it's little yeah. things like that that are pretty cool. But he is, I tell you what, it's it's been a joy to watch him and his family. Um, he's really taken to his family lat, uh, now. I mean, his, he walked his daughter down the aisle this summer. I think that really meant something to him. And now his son, young Bobby, is uh, senior day uh, tomorrow, and. You know that means a lot to him. But if some, he's the greatest assist player of all time in college basketball. He he, he went 18 and two in the um, NCAA tournament. He overcame a horrific car crash. You know, some would say that he shouldn't even be living. But I'd say right now, if you ask me about Bobby Hurley, I'd say he's just a wonderful father and a husband. And, and in that regard, we could all learn something from him. Could Arizona State be that team you're talking about? And, and I'm gonna I'm gonna point something out. You know, uh, Andrew Martin, who has been there most of the season watching yeah. you guys, said the other night it was um, Arizona State's night. Couldn't miss. Um, played great defense against Washington State. You got Adam Miller, Frankie Collins running around there, smooth as ice and glass. And you got Jose Perez looking like the Kool Aid Man, who's uh, ready to run through a wall. Um, give give us an idea. Could Arizona State be that team? It's hard to win four games in four days, but you know Wayne Tinkle did it right. I mean, there's always that hope because of what Wayne's crew did that year. Um, you know, I I do think it's about matchups for anybody. I mean, you know, we we happen to be Washington State. You know, maybe that was a good matchup because they were tired and we played them at home. I don't know. Um, you know, we would have to stay out of foul trouble. Um, but winning four games in four days is probably the hardest part. Um, I think anybody has a better chance to win this if they don't play Arizona. And and what I mean by that is, you know, if somebody knocks off Arizona in the semifinal, mm. your championship is easier, right? I mean, I, I don't care who else there is. I don't care if you're playing Oregon, Arizona State, or whatever. If, if someone beats Arizona for you, the pass gets easier. So, you know, you just it would take those kinds of things. Yeah, and I think you know that could happen. I mean, I've you saw yeah. Stanford Stanford beat them, Washington State beat them twice. Um, you know, right. right night, right team. All right, Tamro, thank you for joining us and waxing nostalgic a little bit. I will see you in Vegas. I will see you uh, potentially at the uh, baseball tournament in Arizona later in the spring as well. I appreciate you, my friend. We got to shut it down in May. Pac-12 Network, Pac-12 Tournament. You got to be down here. I'm, I'm holding you to it, John. <laughs> All right. We'll close it down. Doug Tamro, a- Arizona State. Thank you, my friend. Leave it here. Our big splash coming up. I've, I've been thinking a lot about people like Doug Tamro, our guest last segment, because they've worked in the conference a long time, and they are watching sort of the football season, had this weird sort of 
cloud over it as the uh, conference is trying to move forward and find normalcy. And, of course, the schools departing to the Big 12 and to the Big 10 were all making their plans. But uh, there's a lot of stories and a lot of history. And to uh, to Eddie House's question, does he still hold a Pac-12 record with 61 points in a game? Uh, the Pac-12 record book will continue to exist. Oregon State Washington State will hold it. And I think... Their hope, somebody asked me the day, I did radio in Salt Lake City this morning. I just did it, you know, they wanted me on, I did an interview. They asked, you know, what are Oregon State and Washington State hoping for? And I said, well, here's the Cliff Notes answer. Oregon State and Washington State are looking at Florida State and the ACC. They're looking at Charlie Baker, the NCAA president, who's floated this idea of, you know, major college schools, you know, splitting off. They're looking at um, the SEC and the Big Ten, who are posturing like they're making plans. They're kind of like, uh, you know, rubbing their hands together, acting a little bit like Gargamel. And they're going, you know, you're going, what are they up to? And uh, kind of trying to figure out what's going to happen here in the next 6, 12, 18, 24, 36 months. You can't go on forever in limbo. And you can't also go on more than maybe a year but in and of playing a Mountain West Conference football schedule and playing the WCC and everything else and still insist that you're not Mountain West and WCC after about a year of that year and a half of that you're going to have to come to realize like the realization that the outside world views you as Mountain West or WCC so i think Oregon State Washington State are trying to draw some distinction between themselves and those conferences and while staying in limbo and being nimble and trying to work on their brand and trying to play a football season, a basketball season, a weird some uh, amid some weird and unusual circumstances, but I actually think their plan is actually to rebuild the Pac-12 conference in some form. Does that mean that it includes some Mountain West Conference members? To be determined. It's not going to be all of them, though. I don't think Oregon State Washington State just want relegation. I think if they could have it their way, they would take San Diego State, Air Force, Colorado State. They would look at Fresno State and Boise State, and they'd go, UNLV, you're the last one in. Now we're we're like the best group of five conference in America. Like you could say, you're better than the American. You're better than what's left of the Mountain West. This is us. And you, with a straight face, you could say, hey, our conference champion's going to have a pretty good shot to get into the playoff as an at-large in most years, unless the Big Ten and the SEC get four berths each. Then you've lost some access, right? And so I think that's the plan, and I think that's what they're focused on. It brings us to our big splash. It is the one thing that you need to know today. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash. Brought to you by Killer Burger, home of the peanut butter pickle bacon burger, and voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about. Well, spring training, uh, pitchers and catchers are there, the games have started, but it is officially started today as Shohei Otani made his spring deb- debut with the Dodgers. And he rewarded fans with a home run in the fifth inning on a 3-2 pitch, finishing one for three with a strikeout, grounded into a double play, and his other two at-bats. But that's not what people are talking about. People are talking about the two-run 
home run into the left field stands that got the biggest cheers of the day. Um, the Arizona weather, did it play a role? Shohei said through an interpreter he thought so, but he uh, hit second in the Dodgers' order behind Mookie Betts and in front of Freddie Freeman. And Shohei Otani with his first home run. The reigning AL MVP. First game since undergoing right elbow surgery last September. And then, of course, he signed the 10-year, $700 million contract in December. And uh, fans lined up along the third baseline as he walked the field beforehand. They snapped pictures of him. And 6,678 fans saw Shohei Otani hit a home run in spring training, which means spring training started. And there you have it. That's our big splash. It's the one thing that you need to know today. All right, coming up at 4 o'clock, we're going to talk with Tyson Alger of the I-5 Corridor. He's covering a lot of timber stuff lately. He's been on the ducks. He likes some Portland State, Oregon State as well. He could talk about everything from Seattle down to uh, southern Oregon. So we'll talk with Tyson Alger about what's going on in sports along the I-5 corridor. Now, baseball's got a problem that's looming. This has been firing me up. We were told like a year, two years ago, that baseball said, baseball said, hey, before we expand, we need to get this situation in Oakland and this situation in Tampa under control. And so, you know, as much as I want to believe that baseball has its act together, here we are, one Two years later, still talking about the A's. Are they going to Vegas? Are they staying in Oakland? Are they playing in Salt Lake City? Are they going somewhere else? It's still up in the air. It's like Groundhog Day in Rob Manfred's backyard. The the Oakland A's need to figure out where they're going to be. Baseball needs to figure out whether it not wants to expand or not. Is it taking two teams in the West, one in the East, one in the West? What is baseball doing? It seems to be spinning in a circle. We'll talk about that later in the show as well. Leave it here. It used to be Ricky Henderson sitting around the outfield spitting sunflower seeds. That was that marked the start of spring training. You know, Major League Baseball players don't know how good they've got it. Maybe they do. I don't know. Maybe I'm just, it's one of those things they, that we all say. But think about it. I've always felt like you and I needed a spring training. You know, once a year, we go to sunny... Arizona or Florida back in the day. We stand around. We get to, like, I do a radio show. And it's okay, like, if I go long on segments, we go, hey, it's just the spring. When it really counts, Kanzana will be locked in on those segments. Or like on yesterday's show, I said Jim Beheim, former Syracuse coach, early in the show. And later in the show, I called him Boheim. I don't know why. Maybe it's just because it was later in the show. If it was spring training, I could have said, that's why we do it. It's the spring. Pitchers working on covering first base. Middle infielders taking ground balls on fungos. Nothing that happens in the spring training games truly counts because you get a reset on opening day. Think about it. Bus drivers, they could miss a stop, and then people go, what are you doing? And you go, eh, it's the spring. You know, that's why we do it. That's why we get down to Arizona. We let these bus drivers work on their route. Steven on the board, like, Steven, you know, you could hit the wrong benchmark or fail to go to commercial break or leave a mic open, and, and nobody would be mad at you. They'd just be like, hey, man, that's why we report early. 
We work on this stuff. I just think we all deserve a spring training. Like, you know, check out people at the store, servers and restaurants. You could drop a plate, and they go, hey, we're working on it. That's why we get here in February, and we do this. Uh, I think we all deserve a spring training. That's all I'm saying. That's my larger point. Tyson Alger, I-5 Corridor. That's where you can read Tyson. I get all kinds of fired up when he comes on the show, but lately I've been thinking about Tyson in a way he doesn't know. I've been watching True Detective Season 4, Night Country. Jodie Foster takes place somewhere in, like, the depths of Alaska or Siberia. I don't know which it is, but, you know, it's the longest couple of weeks with no sunrise in in Alaska, and i got to ask our guy from Alaska what this is all about. Tyson Alger, did the sun come up and go down where you were from in Alaska? I mean, it, it kind of explains a little bit about me, um, if you think about it. I mean, just growing up in that darkness. Um, it, I think it was a little overblown. I mean, like, where, where they're at in that show, it's supposed to be kind of up on uh, around where the North Slope is. So it's it's legitimate that you would have, you know, a 30-day-ish period of night. Um, but there's uh, there's definitely some... Uh, um, some liberties that they've taken in the show. First of all, um, I, I don't think that there's a full-blown ice rink of, of that size anywhere in, in that city. But uh, we can get into the full nitty-gritty. Full nitty um, but uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, watching that show, even if it, uh, it went off the rails a few times. How was it like? <laughs> I'm doing well. I have so many questions about that show. But give me an idea. When you are in that part of the country and the days are short like that or non-existent, psychologically what do you what do people do do they have like uv lights when they go inside or how do you know what your body how do, how do you know what time it is oh absolutely at, at some of the so i i grew up in palmer which was an hour north of anchorage which we still got pretty extreme um you know light and dark in, in the summer and the winter but it wasn't quite as much as up like north of the arctic circle where they legitimately do have like uv light therapy in schools but um, I was a hockey player, and so I would go to school, and it would be dark, and I'd have to go straight to practice afterwards. So you get out of school at 2, get to the rink at 2.30, practice would get out at like 3.45, and it would be dark. So it's essentially your, the only time it was light is when you were in school. And, uh, yeah, it was, you know, there would be uh, there would be some fun aspects to it. You know, it was, it was a little easier to get away with, um, you know, some of uh, – extracurricular activities in, in high school out in, out in uh, like places like the coal hills or um you know wherever the the stupid places we used to party but um uh yeah it was it, it could it could put a number on you but in the summer on the flip side it was awesome because i mean how great would it be to go play home run derby at 10 at uh how great is it to go play home run derby at 10 30 at night and you know have just natural lighting illuminating the sky uh the field so uh, you know, there was definitely positives and negatives to it. Now, we have people in the Pacific Northwest here that that will will go to Arizona in the winter and the, or Palm Springs, and then they'll come back. Do people in Alaska have that same thing where they'll enjoy the summer in Alaska, but they'll winter down in Arizona or somewhere warm? Oh, yeah, absolutely. But it's definitely not the, like, six-month split uh summer in alaska is like a solid maybe two and a half months that you want to be up there you know august can be a little iffy 
you know, in, in Oregon here, everyone says it's summer after the 4th of July. Summer's kind of like when you're hitting the tail end stretch, or 4th of July is kind of when you're hitting the tail end stretch of summer up there. So, um, yeah, there, there's a lot of a lot of snowboarding, uh, a lot of going to spring training. That's actually, my, my dad used to take uh, me and my brother to spring training when, when we were kids. That was kind of our our Alaska vacation as we'd go down to Peoria and go to Mariners and Padres games. I actually, in my office here, I have a, an autograph book from Dave Niehaus that I threw to him when I was about six years old at that stadium up into the broadcast booth. And it's something that I've held on to for a very long time. So, um, yeah, I, I love the spring training talk that you had leading into this. Uh, well, there you go. We all deserve a spring training. I5corridor.com. That's where you're writing. That's where people can read what you've been doing. I notice you've been on the Timbers in the early part of this new season. What is it about the Timbers that's drawn you in? You know, it's just it's the start of a new era. They have this new coach, Phil Neville, who had a pretty uh, pretty uh, illustrious career in England. He won six Premier t- Premier League titles with Manchester United. Um, he's pretty good friends with David Beckham. He had a not-so-successful stint at Inter-Miami, and he was the coach that got fired before Messi got here. And, you know, he comes to a Portland organization that has been kind of stuck in the mud for the last two seasons, and I I just find him to be a fascinating character and and representative of a franchise that is, um, you know, trying to kind of start out a new era. And so, you know, for them to to start out with a Forda Four to one win on Saturday. I think it was they were up four zero after like the first thirty five minutes of the game. Um, yeah, it was a it was a pretty triumphant start for them. And you know, for me, I've covered college football largely for the last ten years. It was kind of fun to uh, be in a different press box for a change. I I think that the Timber fan is rabid, diehard, locked in. I've always felt that there was like nineteen thousand of them, but not nineteen thousand and one. How do the Timbers draw in? people who aren't like in that group already like right now that fan base if it if it needs to seek a new market where are they going tyson yeah that's that's something that i'm trying to explore a little bit too because i mean it's it's no secret that i mean part of the reason that i'm kind of expanding into that coverage is because other people have pulled back a little bit and i'm trying to kind of figure out what what exactly works there? Because I think soccer is a very complicated sport to cover because it, there are, there is so much nuance to it. There's so much history and there's so much range between the people who are a hundred percent diehards for it, for it and want analytical and match day and, and that sort of coverage. And then there's a very large population of people who, who know the sport well, but just don't kind of want to get into the X's and O's. And so I think, you know, the, the trick for the Timbers is kind of trying to thread that needle between you know, the, the diehard supporters and the much, much, much larger fan base that's out there that is still kind of curious about it, but isn't quite diehard yet. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in that, whether or not this is the coach, this is the year. Tyson Alger, I-5 Corridor, is our guest. Oregon Ducks tell me today they've had more than 5,000 new inquiries, inquiries for season tickets. Um, their move to the Big Ten fueling this. Maybe... People are thinking, hey, I, I uh, sell the Ohio State tickets, pay for the whole package, then uh, you know, get to go to the games for free. I don't know what they're thinking, but um, outside of football, Tyson, how excited do you feel Oregon is about the move to the Big Ten outside of football? You know, that's a good question, and I think a lot of it will depend on how good they're feeling about their basketball programs a year or two from now. Um 
because if Oregon's playing good basketball, I think the Big Ten is a very exciting opportunity for them. It's it's something new. It's something fresh. It's it's some some team names and brands that everyone's very familiar with within you know college basketball. But you know the men's team is really stalling the last two three years. The women's team is dreadful right now, um, and I think it's going to be a really long couple winters if they don't get this figured out. And so obviously football is the the big draw here it's it's what caused all of this to happen and if football goes well i think everyone can just be okay with whatever else happens but it's a long school year john and there's as we're seeing right now we're talking a lot about basketball we're talking a lot about other sports and you know if if they're struggling in those um it kind of puts the onus on football and the pressure on football to be even that much better dana altman at the end of last season you know you remember what he said he was a little bit down about how things were going and vented in that NIT loss uh, to Wisconsin about, you know, the fans not being there. Um, I asked him how much longer he plans to be at Oregon on this show just uh, about 10 days ago. I'm going to play this clip for you, and I want your reaction. Here's Dana Altman. I asked him how much longer he plans to be at Oregon. You know, I as long as I feel like, I'm the best guy for the job. I'll stay with it. Um, you know, if if the people here ever want to make a change, I won't fight them. You know, I I want to be where people are all in. And, um, you know, Rob's been great. The administration's been great. Mr. Knight, Mr. Kilkenny, uh, people that our program really depend on um, have been great. Um, but I, you know, I want to be here as long as they want me here. And, you know, we've we've got to do a better job, though, John. You know, and I'll be the first one to admit it. You know, NIT is not our goal. And, and you can say, well, you've had injuries. You know, we've, we've got plenty of excuses, but we can't use them. You know, we just we got to get it done. And um, so, you know, I've, I've got to do a better job. My staff, you know, we, we just got to be better. Got to do better. Got to be better. Is Dana Altman sticking around or what goes into that in your mind? You know, it's it's he's such a fascinating coach in that context of we're in an era right now where we do see a lot of college coaches quitting or retiring or or you know in the football phase we've seen the the transition from guys moving from college football to the NFL because they don't really want to deal with a lot of um, kind of this new era of of college sports, but. The, the complicated thing with Dana is he very nearly got to the mountaintop. They got to that final four. They were competitive in that final four. They kind of looked like that that was going to be a springboard for them into um, becoming an elite team, an elite college football team. It was, it was going to put him into the conversations with some of those great college basketball coaches. And then they didn't win that, and they haven't come close to reaching that since. And I, I think Dana is still so darn competitive that I – I wouldn't ever see him leaving an opportunity to get back to that point unless he thought that he had something better somewhere else. So I know he likes to say that he'd be just fine going and being a community community college coach and he just enjoys coaching for the sake of coaching. But that man is very competitive. It's what's driven him throughout his entire career and especially kind of having a chip on his shoulder and, and not being in the conversation with some of the better guys in, uh, amongst his peers. Um, yeah, I, I think he's still very driven. And so I don't, I don't see him being a guy that's just going to step back or, or do a, 
you know, a Nick Saban and surprise everybody and then ride off into the sunset because I think that he still very much wants to, to win and win big. When I think about him, I, I feel like the next couple weeks are huge for him. I mean, he's got a conference tournament. He has a chance to beat Arizona. I still think there's some opportunities for him to kind of salvage a little bit of fun in this season because I just have wondered, Tyson, at different points how much fun he's having anymore, and I think that matters to him. A hundred percent. And uh, yeah, it's when, when Dana has a team that is, is flowing correctly and that he feels like that he has input and they're receiving him well. Um, you know, this, this guy just eats and breathes and, and lives basketball. And, and, and you can, you can really sense that around him. And, you know, some of the post games the last couple of years, he's just looked defeated. Um, and it, it doesn't look fun. And he is 64, 65 years old. He's made a lot of money. Like he, he doesn't have to be doing this. So yeah, I mean, it is, it, it is quite the contrast of, of a coach who, you know, I, I, he's, he's the best Oregon's men's basketball coach of all time. I don't think he's forgotten how to coach the game, but it's just every, every one of these coaches, you eventually get to a time where you have to kind of start asking these questions. And, you know, I think I agree with you. I think this is a very important stretch for them coming up. We've seen him pull off stretches like this before we've seen them come back from worse um and it would be pretty darn inspiring if they were able to do it again <laughs> tyson alger i5corridor.com if you want to read tyson's great work tyson um wayne tinkle on the other hand struggling and yet oregon state would have to pay him 8.7 million dollars at the end of the year to go away is that too steep right now for oregon state's taste i think so I mean, that's, that's, that's a lot of money. I don't know, you know, it's, you're kind of in the position too of who's going to be better. Um, I think there's just still so much uncertainty uh, facing the future of that organization or that, that university that, you know, you, you do have a coach who, yes, they're not a good basketball team this year. Um, they, they can point to still that, that very, very distant seemingly now elite eight run that they had three or four years ago. But um, yeah, that's that's just a, an awfully awfully big contract to uh, get out of if uh, if if you're a, a university that's in a situation like Oregon State is right now. Scott Ruick, good story in women's basketball. Kelly Graves struggling. Graves uh, is telling me, you know, look, he knows he has work to do. He's going to have to get in the portal. Um, can you maybe speak to the the women's basketball scene a little bit and what you see at Oregon State and? the runway they have next season into the WCC and Oregon going to the Big Ten, but Graves' program wobbling a little bit. What do you see? Yeah, it, it's been awfully impressive to see the way that the Oregon State team has come back. You know, obviously they, they had a couple of rough years stymied by the, the pandemic, but um, the way that uh, Scott's been able to rebuild that team, um, just kind of in the vision of what he wants of a very – capable guards who can play tenacious defense and obviously they have a really good center in the middle with uh, Reagan Beers. Um yeah, they're they're really set up to be a force in that conference moving forward and you know the thing over at Oregon, I mean it's it's such a funny contrast too because obviously Ruick's got the job at Oregon State and got Oregon State to a point where they were a national contender before the Eugene hysteria started, but then obviously Sabrina and Kelly and, and that era came and it just blew everything else out of the water. So it's it's kind of funny to see Oregon State as the one that's still standing here. And I'm not sure what the solution is for the, the Ducks women just because, 
you know, Graves has a great pedigree. They've obviously reached heights with that team that, that no Oregon team had in the past. And, and you do see them uh, compiling some wins still on the recruiting trail, but just the, the quality of basketball that's been played at a time when like they kind of need it to be, to be decent. I mean, if you go to Matthew Knight arena right now for the men or women, like it's, it's dead in there. Like it, it, it it's, you know, the, the era of that being, um, you know, the place to be on a Thursday or Saturday night for the men or women is, is long gone. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a push to get a good crowd in that arena. And so, you know, it's, it's not necessarily the right momentum you want going into the big 10, but also Kelly's another coach with a very large contract. And, you know, I, I think he's probably has the pedigree and, um, you know, the, what he's done before should get him a little bit more of a runway there. Yeah. Cause both those coaches, Altman and Graves, have taken teams to the Final Four. And you could argue that that team with Sabrina, that the pandemic you know, knocked the tournament out, that team was going to win the national title. And I look at Kelly Graves and I hear people going, oh, you know, his job, is, is his seat warm? And I'm going, are you nuts? Like, he, he took them to the promised land. He took them to a Final Four with, you know, Baylor and UConn. It, it's, um, and the same goes for Scott Ruick at Oregon State. I just think... I kind of wonder about the collective, Division Street, and whether or not Division Street is as is is interested in basketball as it is football. Is that any of that crossed your radar? Definitely, and I mean, like obviously, the the interest in in football is is miles ahead of where it's at on on the basketball side of things. I, you know, I, I think it's I think it's probably pretty tough for these schools to be on the same page across multiple different sports here because you know you you definitely have people who are interested in, in the money portion of this who are probably fans of one sport, not the other, and it gets complicated and the rules keep changing. And um, yeah, I, I think right now that the main goal for everyone around the UO is to get that football national title and the price for that keeps rising as well. And so I think everything else is just kind of getting the scraps. Tyson Alger, i5corridor.com. I appreciate you, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Hey, hey thanks, John. Thanks. There he goes. Kid from Alaska. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do the longest 30-day weekend or whatever it is, the longest night they called it on the show. If you haven't seen True Detective Season 4, you don't know what I'm talking about. But Jody Foster is wandering around in the dark trying to solve a crime. And, yes, their their night, their long night lasts like 27 days. Uh, couldn't do it. Like, I, it's pitch black outside. It's noon. No. Nope, doesn't work. It's also cold. And I keep going, like, why? I used to say that to people in the Midwest. I was covering Big Ten basketball before it became cool. I was there in the 90s covering uh, Indiana and Purdue. I was driving around the Midwest, and I kept asking people, like, who in your family thought this was a good idea? You know, like, like, like I know how sort of migration works. Somebody came probably from the east and was moving west. And somebody said, eh, right around Ohio or Indiana, this is good. And I, But everybody else kept going. Like, you know, Oregon Trail, whatever. It, but, you know, my grandfather, immigrant from Italy, they moved from Pennsylvania, leave the steel mills and the foundries behind. They come west. He went all the way to Pasadena. He went to California. He was drove until he saw cherry blossoms. Like, I get that. I understand that. Some people didn't. Some people stopped right in the middle of the snow and went, 
this is good. And I always ask people, who did that in your family? Some like you could trace back, go to ancestry.com. I don't know. It 23 and me. Find out who stopped and why haven't you continued going across the country until you hit warm weather? I guess they would say the same as us. Like I kept hearing from people there in the Midwest, how do you live on the western part of the United States? Aren't you scared of earthquakes? And I'd be like, no, <laughs> that's not really a thing. And now, living in the Pacific Northwest, you know what all, all the people in the other parts of the country say about us? They go, how do you live there? It rains all the time. And I'm like, that's why it's green and beautiful. Ugh. Anyway, I digress. Leave it here. Punch it audio coming up. I think the world's off the rails officially now. You can, uh, you can decide for yourself what that moment was. I just remember that. Sports Illustrated used to have this feature back in the day, the sign that uh, the apocalypse is upon us. Um, here it is. It's coming out of a Wendy's fast food restaurant. Have you heard this story about Wendy's, Stephen? I have, yeah. It's uh, it's disappointing for sure. I am really kind of fired up about this. Um, basically, um, uh, Wendy's is planning to implement surge pricing. And at their restaurants next year, they're going to do it in 2025. Basically, surge pricing happens when a company raises its prices when a customer demands when customer demand is high. So more customers in the restaurant. Wendy's has confirmed that it plans to roll out dynamic pricing, just like your Blazers tickets, just like your airlines, just like Uber with surge pricing as early as 2025. CEO of Wendy's says they're going to test it. They're going to test it uh, during d- different parts of the day using an artificial intelligence-enabled menu that will uh, give you changes in the prices and suggestive selling. So they're going to they're gonna invest $20 million to launch digital menu boards that will allow the restaurants to change the prices on the fly. Another $10 million to support the... Uh, the uh, project moving forward. So $30 million total. And uh, I think what's going to happen is you're going to be in line at the drive-thru. You're going to be craving a Frosty, and you're going to see it go up by a dime when the line gets a little longer. Just like Uber and Lyft and Ticketmaster and your airlines. There's so many problems with this. I think it's going to turn people off. I don't see... Like, I think people will accept, hey, if I'm booking an airline ticket and there's huge demand for spring break... And I didn't get the ticket purchased on time. I kind of understand what's happening there and why the airline needs to do it. Because what the airline is trying to do is the airline is trying to incentivize you to book early so they don't have a bunch of empty planes flying around the country. So, you know, there's nothing worse for the airline than like eight people on a 737. I've seen it happen. I walk on. They go, it's not a full flight. And I go, ooh, they're losing money today. And they're just by, there's not enough passengers on here to pay for the fuel. So I get why the airlines do it. I even understand why Uber and Lyft does surge pricing. It makes sense to me that when they're busier, they're trying to incentivize more drivers, like, to you know, hey, you're going to pay a little more because you're traveling during a high-traffic time, and this puts a lot of stress on our drivers, and we want to incentivize more drivers to pick up fares and so we're raising the prices in these surge times in these areas i understand that 
I even understand when you go to buy a ticket for an NBA game and your team sucks and there's no demand and Ticketmaster and StubHub go, hey, you know what, Um, the demand isn't here. And so naturally, not with artificial intelligence, the, the pricing of the tickets drop. Or I understand why the Ohio State game will be a bigger season ticket price on that ticket than you know, like the game against Idaho, for example. So I get all that. But I don't understand why the price of a Frosty or a single with cheese would change due to the fact that there's more people in line. Wouldn't it drop if there were more people in line? Wouldn't you want to incentivize me to stay there? I'm just kind of saying, like, if I, if, I, if I do a head fake, like I'm leaving the line, or I pretend I'm leaving, is the price going to drop? You know, and they go, oh, he's going to leave, drop it by, you know, and I don't know. I don't know how this is going to affect people, but I find it annoying. Steven, you? 100%. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of, I, I don't know that it will turn people off because I think people, fast food is one of those things where I think people get, like, addicted to it, and so they just need it. They crave it. They have to have it. So I don't know that it's going to turn people off, but it does turn me off just thinking about it. Like, why do we have to do this? Like, why do we have to milk every dollar out of every single person no matter what the business model is no matter what company we're going to why do they gotta why do they gotta milk us for every dollar john i just i don't like it i don't i don't like it at all uh i want things to be you know the same prices if i'm gonna go get something to eat i don't want to have to you know risk you know paying an extra money just because i got there at a busier time it doesn't make sense are they gonna make it where you know if it's a snowy day and uh, no one's there. Am I going to be able to get a cheeseburger for a quarter? No, I don't think so. They're, they're not going to do it that way. So they're just trying to get as much money as possible out of me, and I, and I don't like it one bit. I, I, uh, I, I just think this is going to turn some people off. I disagree. I think people will be turned off. Now, look, I'm not a big Wendy's guy, right? But if I'm thinking about Wendy's and I'm going, they're just Jimmy jacking around with the prices, like, you know, that's not going to work for me. <laughs> and that's not going to work for people who are, normal customers who go there. I did see, like, you know, fast food restaurants, have they're always doing, like, trial and error, and they're trying new things, and, you know, McDonald's did the supersize thing for a while, and then they rolled it back, and they said, okay, we're not going to supersize. Morgan Spurlock did the uh, did the video or did the uh, documentary, and he gained, like, 50 pounds, and, you know, he was headed uh, towards a uh, having a heart attack because he was supersizing things, and I would, thought that documentary was really helpful, and trying to get the attention of McDonald's to put healthier things on their menu. I don't really know if they're healthier, but they uh they uh seem to have uh, uh seem to have gone in that direction. Um I also think that you've seen uh testing of different kinds with uh with a bunch of uh, fast food places, but I don't know if they're just trying to draw attention. Like Anna's always she's a conspiracy theorist. She's saying, like, you know, she thinks, like, sometimes these things are just rooted in trying to draw um, people uh, people to the restaurant and get us talking about it. But I can remember, like, there was Panera did a thing. Do you remember what Panera did? No. With their, uh, okay, so Panera did a thing where they said, you know what, um, we're just going to give you a suggested price when you come into the, into the restaurant. And they didn't do it at all the... Um, they didn't do it at all the restaurants, but Panera said, you know, we're going to give you kind of a suggested price and people who can't afford to pay for the meal don't have to pay for it. But if you think that you might want to pay a little more than the suggested price, you're basically subsidizing 
people who you know are maybe uh, homeless or maybe can't afford the full cost of the meal. And so Panera rolled this thing out at some of their restaurants, and I noticed it didn't last very long. <laughs> I just think it probably became a haven for people who weren't willing to pay, and people who were willing to pay weren't in the mood to go, I'm going to go there and subsidize and hang out with the people who aren't willing to pay. And I think that just became a thing. But I know one of the places in, one of the restaurants was in Portland, and it was kind of over by Lloyd Center. And they were kind of doing this thing where uh, Panera was uh, offering that you didn't have to pay for the meal. They just give you a suggested price. Would you go for a suggested price on the menu? I I mean, in theory, it sounds great. Like, yeah, I'm going to suggest what, what you should pay. You don't have to. But I feel like it's just... They're going to get you somewhere. Like, I'm with Ann on that conspiracy. They're, they're, they're going to get you on the back end somehow. But, I mean, yeah, in theory, it would be great just to uh, pay what I want to pay and not worry about it. It, it, it was basically that uh, 60% of the people, Detroit Free Press, I just found a story on it, said that 60% of the people um, paid the suggested price and the rest did not. So, um, you know, 20% paid more than the suggested price. And the idea was that the deep-pocketed diners would subsidize the remaining 20% who wouldn't or couldn't pay full freight. And they were supposed to be community outreach locations, right? They were, this was just an idea. But um, the big difference was you got, uh, you got a bill at the cash register with a suggested donation. You were free to put whatever you want in there. But I noticed it did not last very long. I mean, I can tell you I would never pay more than the suggested price. Like, never. <laughs> I mean, I, maybe that's just because I'm cheap or something, but I, there's no chance I would ever do that. I'd pay less, but I would never pay more. But I also think, like, you know, you've been in a situation where you've lent a helping hand to somebody. So is it the fact that you can't see the face of the person you're helping? Yeah, I think so. And I, you know... Call me uh, call me a jerk if you want to, but I think maybe I would want to help people that I that I know and that I care about rather than just some random person just out of nowhere that I did, that I can't see their face like you said. I don't know. I think it's one of the big challenges when it comes to like nonprofits and charity in general. Yeah. Like I think if I went around the country saying help the BFT Foundation and help kids in the you know Portland metropolitan area and Eugene and Salem and you know, the wildfires that affected Central Oregon, you know, kids are really uh, hurting and, you know, need need your help. Like if you're in if you're selling that message in Knoxville, Tennessee, you're going to get people going, yeah, we got kids here who need help. But I think, it's, you know, I think it's one of the big challenges, like for the big entities like the American Red Cross and others who are trying to, you know, raise funds or raise awareness. Like, you know, it's hard for us all to imagine and visualize you know, who are we helping put a face on this for us? And I, I think it's one of the things why we've tried to keep the BFT Foundation fairly focused and narrow in scope. Like we've had people say, why don't you expand into Idaho or why don't you expand up into the Seattle area? And I go, yeah, because the listeners of this radio show and the donors for the BFT Foundation, they want to help people in their backyard. They want to help kids that are, you know, the, when the wildfires hit central Oregon and, and, you know, we we were able to mobilize fairly quickly and raise money for kids who lost everything and wanted to go to a summer camp and wanted to have their school supplies replaced. And the uh, in, you know, in the Phoenix area, especially and you know, the houses burned to the ground and people lost everything. And so I think it was it was really uh, inspiring to see people, 
you know, respond to that and respond to helping people in their own backyard. But you're right. When you don't, when you're paying 20% extra, you're thinking, gosh, I want to pay extra. You're kind of looking left and looking right going, who am I helping? Am I helping somebody who needs it or am I helping some guy who's just looking for a free ride? And we've all heard the story of the person who gets scammed. And I think that's what we don't want to do, right? Like we don't want to get scammed. So you're right. If we can see the people's face, we know who we're dealing with. And yeah, I'm more than willing to help as much as I can. But it's just, you know, am I supposed to blindly trust Wendy's or Panera that they're going to use this money for the good? I don't know. I can't trust Panera Bread that they're going to use my extra 20% for the next person. I'm not going to Wendy's. I'll be boycotting Let's Wendy's. boycott it, yeah. If they're going to do dynamic pricing, I'm going to do dynamic shopping. All right, coming up, Shohei Otani hits a home run in his debut with the Dodgers. You'll hear the crack of the bat. Plus, Russell Wilson talking and Peter King talking about uh, the idiots that ruined the Pac-12. All of that and more next. Oh, I, I'm yelling at the clouds. I'm pleased to be in How in the world can the head coach at UCLA go to become the offensive coordinator at a school in the same conference? What is wrong with this picture? I'll tell you what's wrong with this picture. You know, the Pac-12 should be the Pac-12. The idiots who put the Pac-12 in the Big Ten are idiots. They just are. Peter King, Monday morning quarterback. Calling it quits after 40 years, said uh, in a his farewell column on Monday that uh, he's going to see what it's like to be bored. But before he does, he joined Dan Patrick and laid out that there. And I think he captures it beautifully. The absurdity of it is set in in stages for a lot of people who've followed the Pac-12 over the year. But from Peter King's vantage point, if he sees it that way, um, I'll buy it as well. Let's play some Punch It. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Let's start with Ken Rosenthal, who knows a thing or two about Major League Baseball. He believes a team in Oakland is better than a team in Vegas. Here's Rosenthal. Punch it. They say that fan base is not good. They don't show up. No. As I said on Unfair Territory, give that fan base a competitive team again and give them a new ballpark. Give them a place to go that is not as depressing as the Coliseum. You watch. You see if that market at that point does not show up. I believe that it would. And I believe that a team in the Bay Area under those circumstances, new ballpark, competitive roster, will be a lot more viable and important for Major League Baseball and lucrative for Major League Baseball than a team in Las Vegas. There's seven and a half million people in the 13 counties that are around Oakland and include Oakland Alameda. Seven and a half million people. You're not going to find more people. And so the problem with Oakland has never been population. It's never been... Do these people understand baseball? They have a long history with baseball in Oakland. It's never been anything but the product that the Oakland A's ownership has put on the field is non-competitive, and the dump that they've asked people to buy tickets and see the team in is so badly outdated that the players are, 
you know, looking around the dugout and seeing sewage. And, you know, it's just, it's terrible. It's a terrible, untenable situation. But Rosenthal's right. I don't see baseball in Vegas as even a second-tier option for people who are deciding whether or not to support the team. You've got the Raiders. You've got the Golden Knights. You have UNLV. You've got Carrot Top and the Blue Man Group and Sebastian Maniscalco at the Win Encore Theater. You've got Cirque du Soleil. You've got the buffets. You've got gambling. You you throw baseball on top of that, and I think you're really asking a lot of people in Vegas. And and when the NBA, not if, when the NBA gets to Vegas, you're going to throw on an added element of competition that Major League Baseball won't be able to contend with. No history, no connection to the region. Baseball is a summertime sport. Yeah, I get it. They're going to have a dome, but it just it doesn't work as well in Vegas as it does in Oakland. But the problem in Oakland has been you have an owner who's not interested, wants to get out of Oakland because what? He saw what Mark Davis did in taking the franchise to Vegas and watching the valuation of the franchise explode. And he watched what the Warriors did in moving to San Francisco and said, oh, they became one of the most valuable professional sports franchises just by moving up the road. And so I get it. I get what John Fisher's trying to do, but... It's a uh, square peg in a round hole. We'll see what Vegas and the A's do. But, I, again, it's Groundhog Day. Rob Manfred, your league two years ago was saying, hey, we got to get the uh, Rays and the A's settled, and then we'll talk expansion. I feel like we're having the same conversation. Paul Feinbaum says he doesn't want to see a group of five schools in the college football playoff. They cannot compete. They will be sacrificial lambs. Feinbaum speaking for the SEC. Punch out. No, I don't want to see. Uh, I mean, I, I felt badly for Liberty this year. They had a great season, and it just seemed like it got torched on that final game. Um, there is no way they can compete, uh, and they are simply going to be sacrificial lambs. I agree Liberty didn't belong in that bowl game with Oregon. But two, two bowl seasons ago, Tulane beat USC. We forget that. The group of five teams, like Boise State in its prime, Tulane two years ago, those group of five teams can win first-round games. I'm not saying they can win the whole thing, but they can win first-round games. And as Mountain West Conference coaches in the past at Boise State, San Diego State, and Fresno State have said in a variety of ways, throw us a bone. Give us a shot. A puncher's chance. I'm not opposed to it. I don't think we're going to see the one seed and the two seed playing those teams because I don't think most often they're going to get out of the first round. But let's not call them sacrificial lambs. I think it's ignorant. Paul Feinbaum, as a mouthpiece of the SEC. Russell Wilson tells the story of how the Broncos told him that uh, his injury, they wanted him to, he was going to change his injury protection, change his contract, or they were going to bench him. Here's uh, Dangerous. Punch it. And so we beat Green Bay, Kansas City. We beat them. And uh, as you mentioned that's when, as you mentioned earlier, that's when I got that call. And I was like, I'm confused what's going on. And I didn't believe it at first. I was like, this, this can't be real. And I got that call that, hey, we're going to bench you for the next nine games if 
you know, you don't change the injury guarantee. So for me, but but be clear here, they, it's it's not they don't want to bench you because of play. They're saying they're benching you because they want you to take out the injury guarantee. Yeah, they want they yeah they want to re- push back my injury guarantee and remove it for that rest of the year. So that way, if I get injured, that they don't have to pay it. I didn't want to set a, a precedent for players to remove their injury guarantees, too, as well. And so it, it, it was it was no way I was going to do that. And so when they said that we're, we're going to bench, we're going to bench, I said, all right, that, that's what you want to do. They made a business decision. I don't blame them for that. Teams do it at other positions. Russell Wilson had a choice. You, you know, rework the contract, make it more favorable for Denver, or you're out of work. He chose to take the fork in the road, more or less, take the turn to the right instead of the turn to the left. And the Broncos had to make a decision. The bigger problem has just been Russell Wilson's performance in general in Denver. And I can't get to like you know was it disrespectful what the broncos did and ignore the fact that he just didn't deliver in a way like the broncos made a big bet on russell wilson and i always say that the mark of a good franchise is that when they make a mistake they course correct so i'm not going to knock the broncos for course correcting here it's a business he knows it this business has made him wealthy and you know it'll be something else for Russell Wilson next season. Andy Reid was asked about Taylor Swift. Was she a distraction? Like, can you say she's a distraction when you win the Super Bowl? Andy Reid doesn't think so. Punch it. I really didn't worry about it. I, I knew her dad and her mom and um, good, solid people. And I, I'd met her when she was young. Yeah. <clears throat> and they, she's so grounded for who she is. Yeah. I, mean, I mentioned somewhere that since the queen has passed away, she might be the most famous woman in the world. I right? don't disagree uh, yeah. with you. You're right. And so, um, uh, you know, but she handles it. She, it's a, I think it's a great escape for her where she can come in and she sincerely enjoys the games. Yeah. And kind of behind the scenes, she, uh, you know, to fit in, I, I, she didn't even know she was doing this, I don't yeah, think. But, right. But, you know, she likes to cook, so... She made the offensive lineman these homemade pop tarts. Oh, wow! So it was over. What was Taylor <laughs> Swift? Yeah, homemade yeah. pop tarts. Yeah, so it was over. She knew right where to go. Coming to a grocery store near you, very shortly. How long before Taylor Swift decides she wants to own an NFL team? Think about that. Part of an ownership group, probably not with the Chiefs because of the Hunt family, but won't be surprised to see some other NFL team when it comes up for sale. Taylor Swift going, oh, why not? want to get in on that does she need that i don't know but i said it like a year ago i said taylor swift and Lionel messi no they were surging and trending in a way that um was new and different and bigger than ever before we'll talk uh, more about messi's impact on apple's deal with mls in the happy hour you having a bad day boss getting to you tired of the rain stick around we'll change your tune You'll notice that Anna is normally here in studio for the 5 at 5. But today, she's with the uh, the two young ones, the 7-year-old and the 9-year-old, standing out front of our local grocery store, shilling Girl Scout cookies. <laughs> We're going to hear about that tomorrow. Anna selling Girl Scout cookies. She's the... Uh, the mom out there in front of the store. I'm sure they're, uh... They asked me for some sales advice, Stephen, to the two young ones before they left. 
And I said, make eye contact with people. Give them those eyes you give me when you really want want something. They're not going to be able to say no to those two. I I am a sucker for, like, kids when they, you know, show any type of, like, emotion towards you. It it pulls at the heartstrings, even for someone like me. One of the neighbors told me when the two girls showed up, they were going around door to door selling the the cookies. I said, what was the sales pitch like? And they would, and they said, you know, we're selling Girl Scout cookies. The money benefits our troop. How many boxes would you like to buy? (laughs) That was the pitch. Not, you know, would you like to buy some? How many boxes? That's how it went down. And it was interesting. I, uh, I learned a lot about my neighbors. There were some neighbors who said, we'll take one box. Kind of cheap. Others said, 10 boxes. Bought them for all their friends. I think you can tell uh, who's generous and who's not generous by how many Girl Scout cookies they buy because those boxes are six bucks for that little box of uh, crack-like goodness that they're they're selling. Do you have a favorite Girl Scout cookie? Uh, tag-alongs are always my go-to. Solid. They're solid. I like the Thin Mints. I can... Uh, you put me around a sleeve of Thin Mints at the wrong time of the day, forget it. It's dangerous. <laughs> dangerous, dangerous proposition there. Very dangerous. Um, Shohei Otani hit a home run today for the Dodgers in spring training. I'm wondering if that's going to make your 5 at 5. Let's find out. Steven's got the 5 at 5. The 5 at 5. Number 1. Now, Shohei Otani did not make my 5 at 5, but a different Major League Baseball story did. So we'll start off with that. John, I am fascinated with the new uniforms that have been rolled out for Major League Baseball by Nike and Fanatics and how the players just hate them. Um, Pants are see-through. You can see everything. But the Royals, their players, now they said they like the uniforms. We'll We'll see what that's true. But they maintained that one of the things they hated about it was the lettering on their uniforms as it kind of looks like it was a t-shirt giveaway type of lettering. Like, really small, can't really see it. So, what the Royals did is they talked to Nike and MLB to maintain the full-size lettering as a way for the fans to connect with the team's players, and it worked. The Major League Baseball, they put out a statement that denied that they altered the pants or anything else, but they did confirm to changing the Royals fabric and only the Royals. So there's been spring Mm. training games where the Royals players, like their names are really bold and big on their jerseys, and then their opponents have really small letters, and you can't really see their names. The reason why, John, the reason why they got these changed, according to Major League Baseball uh, sources, they, quote, lobbied hard for it, end quote. Uh, so seems like uh, there's little that can be done to change the uniforms, the actual uniforms, but Major League Baseball may be willing to change the lettering of the jerseys uh, on the back of the jerseys for their names, but um, everything else seems like it's kind of like stayed the same. I'm just fascinated with these jerseys and how everyone hates them so far in Major League Baseball. Players are complaining. Fans don't like them. I mean, there's something special about a baseball jersey when it's done right, and I love the feel of the jersey and the stitches and – and I, I think they've gone a long way towards cheapening all of that. But beyond that, I, I heard some snickering this week from Under Armour. Under Armour, people may forget, originally had the deal to do the Major League Baseball uniforms. But Under Armour figured out it was going to cost them $50 million to do the uniforms for Major League Baseball. They backed out of what was a 10-year deal, 
And that's when Nike kind of came in and said, okay, we'll do this. And the Nike influence on Major League Baseball uniforms hasn't been great. Yeah, We talked about it yesterday with a guest on the show who kind of wondered, like, did Oregon, is Oregon to blame? And, and not really, but kind of the the precedent that Oregon set in these cool uniforms and changing uniforms, like, can you point a finger at Nike and Oregon and go, okay, it works at Oregon, it's awesome at Oregon, the combination's got a lot of attention, the players love them there, but it doesn't really work when you do it in Major League Baseball, where there's so much tradition, so much history. When you go to the, you know, the baseball museum at Cooperstown, or you go to any museum that includes baseball and you look back 20, 30, 40 years, you see jerseys that are, you know, reasonably recognizable. This season, even in spring training, I'm seeing things and I'm going, uh, what is that? It it looks more like an NBA game, more like a, you know, National Hockey League expansion franchise. It's not a great look. Nike's got to get this fixed. The pants have to get fixed. You can't have see-through pants on Major League Baseball players. It's not good for the game. Number two. Warriors dynasty in the NBA will not be going away as Steve Kerr has officially signed his two-year contract extension. According to Woj, that deal, two years, $53 million, makes him the highest-paid coach in NBA history. His contract was set up to be uh, be done at the end of this season, so Kerr will be there for two years. Uh, interesting enough, enough contract will align him with Steph Curry's contract, which has two years as well. So uh, Steve Kerr, he's won four titles, been in the final six times as a coach. He won his 500th game earlier this year, earlier in February, which made him the fifth fastest coach to do so in history. So Steve Kerr going to be with the Warriors for at least two more seasons. All right. Steve Kerr's NBA career played in Cleveland, Orlando, Chicago, San Antonio, Portland, people may forget, and then back to the Spurs. You know, span 11 seasons. He made $15.6 million in 11 seasons. Now he's going to make what? 50 what? $53 million for two years. <laughs> two years. So coaching's been good to Steve Kerr. No wonder he sticks around. I'd be careful, though, to say that the Warriors dynasty isn't going away. It'll be interesting to see what this franchise does with Clay Thompson, how much is left in the tank there, how much of this was just a bad season, a bad stretch for him. Draymond Green, what do you do there? An aging Steph Curry, um, you know this is a this is a roster that has a lot of questions. And you know I'm looking at their payroll now. Golden State has the biggest payroll in the NBA. They have 175 million dollars of contracts under contract for next season. They're going to be a top five payroll, maybe the top payroll again. But you're looking at Steph Curry is going to make 55 million next year. Chris Paul's down to make 31 million. Andrew Wiggins going to make 26 million. Draymond Green 24 million. Everybody's getting paid. I don't know how good they're going to be though, Stephen. Warriors tenth uh, place right now in the Western Conference, 29-27, three games up on the Jazz for that final play-in spot. So it looks like they'll make at least the play-in. But yeah, I mean, at least I think they're deciding on who who their core is for the next two years. It's, it seems like John, they have a plan of we got two more years left with Steph Curry. Let's try to see what we can win out of that. And I think you're right. There's going to be some decisions, hard decisions to be made this offseason. But they're going to go two years with that core of Steph and Steve Kerr and just build around them. I remember Paul Allen. He, You know, the Blazers had the biggest payroll in the league, 2002-2003. Number one payroll in the league. They finished eighth in the West. Paul Allen said, I'm not paying that much to finish eighth. I'll be curious to see with the Warriors at the top payroll in the league, $209 million they're spending this year. 
if they end up 10th or 9th or 8th, like how much soul searching you have to do when that happens? Number three. NFL scouting combine starting out this week, officially started yesterday, but there's been a lot of interviews today. The drills start out on Thursday with the defensive linemen and linebackers, but the big question is what will the Bears do at number one? Bears GM Ryan Poles, he uh, had some interesting comments today talking about Justin Fields and maybe the possibility of trading him. Here's Poles uh, earlier today in Indianapolis. Yeah, again, it just depends on what opportunities pop up. Um, I will say this. Um, I think you guys know me uh, well enough now. I do, if we go down that road, um, I want to do right by Justin as well. Uh, no one wants to live in gray. Um, I know that's uncomfortable. I wouldn't want to be in that situation either. So uh, we'll gather the information. We'll move um, as quickly as possible. We're not going to be in a rush um, and see what presents itself and what's best for the organization. Certainly sounds I, yeah. there, John, that he's going to tra- uh, draft Caleb Williams and look to trade Justin Fields based off those comments. Yeah, it sounds to, like he's saying Justin Fields is available. I'll, I'll accept the offer. He wants to do right by him. It, I mean, that that means even though you can say there's no master plan, if you're saying that, you can't bring Justin Fields back, can you? I mean, are you have to, you'd have to have a hard time bringing him yeah, back. Yeah, I would think so. And the locker room has come out and said they support Justin Fields and they have his back, but it sounds like the GM, Ryan Poles, uh, does not. Think about this, John. Ryan Poles was part of the uh, Kansas City Chiefs organization when they drafted Patrick Mahomes. So maybe he sees a little, you know, there's been some comparisons, Caleb Williams, Patrick Mahomes. Maybe mm-hmm. he sees some of that in Caleb. Maybe they end up trading Caleb, the first pick to the Washington Commanders, who are rumored to really want that pick in Caleb Williams because he's from the D.C. area. But, yeah, I mean, that comment by Ryan Poles just makes it seem as if, you know, Fields is out there. If you guys want him, let's go get him. Uh, I expect a move probably to be made a couple of weeks before the draft. you got to trade the, you got to trade Fields before the draft just to kind of know for teams what they're looking for. Yeah, and I think there are some teams that would be interested in Fields. Only 24. But, you know, yeah, yeah, 24, some proof of performance. I didn't love him. I Granted, I only saw him really extended watched him maybe five or six times in the last couple of years but i you know he had some moments some nice moments i kind of wonder what he would do in a different scenario in a different situation he was obviously thrown into the fire in chicago like a lot of young quarterbacks are and expected to win and you know it isn't all on him but that is the right choice right if you're ryan poles and the yes. bears you've got to trade fields i i don't think that caleb williams is patrick mahomes i think he's caleb williams and I think it's unfair to for people to say, oh, you know, com- you know, people always want to draw those comparisons. I think it's an unfair comparison because he's a different player. But he's he's got that escapability that NFL GMs talk about that they want in their quarterback. He has the ability to hurt you with his feet if he has to. But I, what I like about Caleb Williams is that as a college quarterback, he preferred to stay in the pocket and throw the ball. He's got a great arm, great feel for the game. Uh, the freelancing, I think, will work in the NFL, but I think, uh, you know, I'd like to see him, you know, in, in a place like Chicago. I think I think whoever has the number one pick has got to pick him. Number four. Now, some people say this is the worst rule in all of sports. I don't agree with that, but the NFL, when you fumble out of the back of the end zone, John, in your own end zone, it's a touchback for the defense. That was rumored to be changed this offseason, but there will be no rule change next year for that rule uh, at all at the meetings today they said Stephen Jones of the Cowboys said that the talks have died because it's, it's such a rare occurrence of that happening with ball carriers uh, fumbling out of the back of the end zone and they say they suggest that the ball carriers just be more protective of the ball as they're going into score it's such uh, a bad rule <laughs> but well listen to this though how how often do you think it happens 
because it doesn't happen very often, John. Uh, it happened twice this past season, one in week two. Then, of course, the big one, the AFC Divisional round where Nicole Hardman fumbled out of the back of the end zone. In 2022, not one time did it happen. And then in 2021, it happened one time. So it doesn't what, happen what very What should often. happen? What should happen when a player fumbles out of the back of the end zone or hits the pylon with the ball and loses it? Or... I, I think they should. I think I love the rule. I like the rule. If you're on offense, protect the ball down to the end zone. That's the most important play. You're going to score a touchdown. Why, why reward a player for making a bad play and fumbling out of the back of the end zone? Be more protective of the ball in that situation. It's such a lousy feeling when that happens to your team because – you realize they're within an inch or a foot or a yard of scoring a touchdown and they have just given the ball to the other team and they've given up a 20-yard gain the other direction. <sighs> Sounds like, ball though, this rule 20. won't be changed for at least a couple of years. It's going to stay the same. Number five. This story has it all, John. Youth football, only fans, broken leg, Tyreek Hill. Uh, apparently broke a woman's leg when he charged at her with crushing force <laughs> during a backyard football lesson, according oh, to a lawsuit. Uh, influencer and OnlyFans model Sophie Hall says that Hill felt humiliated uh, when she managed to hold her own and even knock him backwards during a series of practice drills at Hill's mansion. Uh, Hall, 35-year-old, is an actress plus-size model with more than 2 million social media flower, uh, followers. She is suing the scandal-plagued uh, Tyreek Hill for battery, assault, and negligence. Hall signed her 10-year-old son up for Tyreek Hill's camp, which was at Tyreek Hill's mansion. Uh, they were supposedly sending messages to each other, Hill uh, flirtatious messages back to her. Uh, so he flew her out to Florida on June 28th, invited her to quote-unquote hang at his $7 million mansion, uh, and Hill invited Hall to participate in some of the offensive drills. Now, Hall, she said since her 10-year-old son plays offensive lineman, that's the position she should practice. So what happened was is Tyreek Hill asked her to adopt a, adopt a defensive line position, encouraged her to rush him as if she was chasing a quarterback. <laughs> you can't make this up. I, I'm not. And so Hall, she was born in Britain. She had never played football before, but she'd said, according to the suit, she did as she was told. And it says Ms. Hall did as instructed and on contact with the defendant, Caused Hill to be pushed backwards, garnering laughter from the witness present, witnesses present at the time, including the defendant's mother, sister, friend, and trainer. And so for the next few plays, Hall was instructed to play offense, hiking the football to an imaginary quarterback, while Hill became the defensive pass rusher. On the third play, John, Hill rushed through, and Miss Hall held her own against Tyreek Hill. The lawsuit states uh, then. Uh, on the fourth play, uh, Tyreek Hill charged into her violently and with great force, resulting in significant and serious injuries, the suit alleges. Uh, and then after being in pain and agony for days, Hall has been diagnosed with a right leg fracture, which required surgery. She's out uh, on social media posting videos of herself with a broken leg. So, uh, you know what? People can't handle Tyreek Hill on the NFL field, but the uh, the OnlyFans model can hold her own uh, in the backyard. Sign her up. Uh, no, Look, I'm uh, looking at the lawsuit now. There's actually a photocopy of the direct messages between Tyreek Hill and the uh, plaintiff in this lawsuit. Here's here's how it starts. You know, if you want to know how the broken leg starts, Tyreek Hill messaged her first, and he said not. She said, not what? And he said, not six foot one. And then she responded, LOL, yes, I am. He responded, there's no way, LOL. She responded, LOL, you'll see. Oh, this is going somewhere. He said, how will I see? You going to teleport to me? 
She said, literally, I just paid for your camp for my son yesterday, and now you're here. And then she screenshotted the uh, the uh, receipt for uh, the camp, and then he said, we lit, then I'm going to see you towering over everyone, I guess. I've been known to be a good stepdad. <laughs> that's That's the messaging. That's as sophisticated as it got. Is that flirtatious? I mean, I can't tell. I've been out of the game. I don't know. If, is that how, but, you, is but, how people do it now? But then her son goes to the football camp, and then he asks her to come back and visit him at his house. I don't think she thought she was coming back there to do drills in the backyard, but that's where she ended up. She's out there doing drills, blocking people, getting after the quarterback. Sign her up for the Niners. They could have used that in the Super Bowl. The, include this among – and there's, a, there's also a uh, – her x-rays are in the lawsuit as well. I've seen way too much already. Just be, that, be careful yeah. like, what links you click when you click on her. You got to be that's, careful. You got to be careful what you're clicking that, on, John. That's the 5 at 5. But uh I'm I don't know. I mean if she held her own in these drills against Tyreek Hill, did she cover him or was it more like she was working as the offensive lineman defensive lineman? I don't know. I think it was more of a lineman situation, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. It seems it seems out of left field, but I can't wait to see what happens yeah. out of it. I'm excited. Uh, let me see. The plaintiff uh, alleges every allegation contained in paragraphs 1 through 42. No thanks. I'm done with this lawsuit. All right, coming up, uh, we're going to talk about the Blazers' season and hope for Blazer fans. What does a five-year lease mean when a team signs a five-year lease? We'll talk tipping, and we'll talk about these uh, – Family fun adventure places that you go, like Big Al's and these, uh, you know, these bowling slash video arcades. Uh, I found myself in one of them over the weekend. Uh, all of that still ahead. All right, Trailblazers tickets. You can get them for like a buck on uh, secondary resale sites. Um, we've already kind of, you know, hammered the Blazers like a pinata this season on the show because they deserve it. When you produce a product that's inferior, uh, we're not going to sit here and sugarcoat it. That's how it goes. But I want to know, what can this franchise do between now and next season to put a more palatable product on the court? Dwayne Hankins, president of the Blazers, reached out to me the other day and we texted back and forth, and he, he wants to get together at the end of the season. So what should I bring to Dwayne Hankins? What ideas? What kind of conversation should we be having as we talk about the future of the business of the Blazers? They've signed a five-year lease with the city. It's a short-term lease. I believe the Blazers are going to ask local and state authorities for tax dollars to help renovate and improve Moda Center. I think they're after public money. I think that's part of their push. I think that's the reason why they signed a short-term lease. I think they want to leverage the city, scare people, use the idea that if they don't get some tax dollars to renovate and improve Moda Center, they might look somewhere else. That threat, I think, is mostly idle because NBA owners are not going to want to cannibalize $3 billion in franchise expansion fees by cannibalizing Seattle and and or Vegas, three three billion dollars each. By the way, six billion dollars going into the NBA owners' pockets. Um, but give me an idea, Stephen. Like, what can this franchise do? What's what kind of hope can we sling here on this segment? I want to know what what's going to be done about the TV situation. Um, the okay. the root sports deal. 
because that's it's a bad deal, right? Like it's a it's a terrible deal. But from what I've been told, it wasn't as if like the people that are making that deal, the people getting blamed for it, like a Dwayne Hankins, wasn't even necessarily on board with it as much as people want to think he was. And it kind of was just thrown at them and they almost had to take because there was no other option. So I, I want to know about that because I do think that is a big thing. It seems like such an easy solution to do what the Phoenix Suns are doing and just put it out there for free and to have be able to let people watch the game at their choosing and try to, like as we've talked about, get on board while the team is young and get you know familiar with the players and hopefully build that type of relationship. So that's one of the things I really want to know about. I think the TV thing's big. I also, though... I wonder if is it enough by itself because if you put the same product back on the floor and you put it on TV it still sucks it's just on TV. So it's part of it though but because that's access. a connection to the fan yeah it's, it's a access. connection to the fan base because because if they do get good or there's somebody there that's worth watching you can't get to them. You can't watch them. That access is important. So what about the court the players on the court? Who on this Blazers roster is in your mind part of the future definitively part of the future not yeah they might be if they stick around but let's talk about this roster and what is worth keeping on this roster with oh by the way um has the 14th highest payroll in the nba it's not not bad when it comes to payroll uh jeremy grant anthony simons malcolm brogdon who in your mind is part of this roster in a year? Um, so I think the number one guy is Scoot Henderson. I think he's the number one guy that's going to be built built around okay. it. I think he you're should, keeping Scoot. You're keeping Scoot, and I think you should because I think he has the most charisma on the team. I think he has the most um, genuine like relationship with fans, and like I think he, you know, his smile, like the way he plays, he plays so hard. I think is really good. Um, I think he's the guy that you can build around. You can't sell. Now he has to perform on the court. He has to be that guy. But I think that is the one. The one guy you're building for sure. Surprisingly here, John, DeAndre Ayton. I think he makes so much money it's going to be hard to move him, but he's been really good the last month or so. 18 points, 11 rebounds, 63% shooting. In a time when the Blazers have really struggled, he's been the most consistent Blazer out on the court since he's kind of come back um, from when he was inactive with some of the injuries. And there were some rumblings earlier that he was tardy to some practices. He was late. The teammates weren't getting along with him. They were already looking to try to move him. Um, but it seems like the Blazers have kind of gone a 180 on him. And I think as long as he's engaged, he is a really good player. And I think that the Blazers kind of want to build with him because he does some things that the Blazers have been able to do from the big man spot. So I think it's Scoot. I think it's DeAndre Ayton. And then I think you got to make your decision on Anthony Simons. It's like kind of right now I feel like the team and – they're trying to sell Anthony Simons as the future. I don't think he is. I don't think that the team, like Chauncey Billups and Joe Cronin, even think that he is the guy to build around. So you got to make a decision on him. But I think those two, Scoot and DeAndre Ayton, I think those are the guys you're kind of building around. Yeah, and I think, you know, it was pointed out the other day, Malcolm Brogdon, the Blazers don't have a win this season that he where he hasn't played in the game. Like, I saw that 0-18, oh, I think, so far. 0-18 oh, when he's out. That, to me, like... Do you is he that valuable, or is that just one of those weird stats that develops over the course of a season? It is a weird stat, but I, he is really good. And when he doesn't play, the Blazers really lack a true point guard because Scoot Henderson's just not at that point yet where you can say go out and play thirty minutes of handling the basketball and being the main point guard. And then Anthony Simons isn't a point guard, and so I think Malcolm Brogdon is really the one guy on this team that can consistently night in night out 
create a shot for himself and create shots for others. So he is actually really important to this team, but he's important to a lot of teams. So I I, I think there's going to be some teams calling in the offseason around the draft time saying, you know, we can use a veteran on our team like Malcolm Brogdon and come off the bench and really help. So I think this actually does improve, like, trade stock-wise, saying, look, this guy actually still helps at his age. So, yeah, it's one of the things where if he doesn't play, the Blazers don't have a ball handler, and that's always a problem in the NBA. Blazers had two picks in last year's draft. They used the three pick on Scoot Henderson, the 23rd on Chris Murray. Uh, Going forward, here's where they're at. They've got the Warriors' 2024 first-round pick. It's top four protected. It looks like they will pick with it. It'll probably be a mid-first-round pick, the way it's going for the Warriors. Um, They have uh, their own pick. Then they have a 2024 second-round pick, two second-round picks. Um, What what should they be looking for with their two first-round picks, their own and the pick they're getting from the Warriors. Well, you're right. Four draft picks for the Blazers in this upcoming draft in a draft that is not supposed to be great. But anything you read, you kind of look at who's in the draft. The draft isn't great. So I expect the Blazers not not to use all those picks. I would hope that the Blazers are looking to shop one of the first-round picks or shop some of the second-round picks and try to move out of the draft, whether that's getting another young player or that's getting just a veteran player. Get, get something of value out of those picks because I don't know that you're going to get the value in the slots of the draft you're actually going to get because there's not even a consensus number one overall pick. Like, there's talk of Cody Williams from Colorado. He could be potentially be the number one pick. Like, he has the makings of a good role player, like a really good role player, but you don't draft those guys number one. So it will be interesting to see what the Blazers do. I think that a lot is going to be on Joe Cronin's plate this this offseason. He has the draft capital to make some moves. Is he willing to trade some of those, or does he want to be a guy that uh, is all about the draft? And Mike Schmitz, the assistant GM, John, he, he's the draft expert. And I am convinced that the Blazers and Jody Allen and Burt Cold have put all their resources into Mike Schmitz. Because you look at when they hired him, they could have traded some draft picks to try to help around Dame. They didn't do that. What did they do? They drafted Shaden Sharp. They drafted Scoot Henderson. They mm-hmm. weren't building around Dame. They were building around the draft. And so I think they put a lot of stock into Mike Schmitz. And so I think it'll be interesting to see if Joe Cronin can and will is willing to make some type of move off one of those four picks. Because four picks in this draft isn't great. You, you, you just don't want that. You got to make some moves elsewhere. But in every NBA draft, Stephen, there are three or four guys that are all-stars. And the job of the Blazers is to find those guys. And the problem has been that they have occasionally found one of those guys, but too often they've found, you know, a Myers Leonard or an Alan Crabb or a Martell Webster or, you know, and, you know, could have had Chris Paul took Martell Webster. They Too often it's been that story in Portland. And so I, I still think like if, if you do have that kind of faith in your scouting and you do have that kind of faith, even though it's a bad draft, there are players in this draft that are going to end up, when you redraft it years from now, being no-brainers. And I, I go back every year and I look at like NBA drafts from recent past. Like, you know, if you even went back and you said, okay, go back to like 2019's NBA draft and you look at that draft and you had to re-pick it, you know, Zion Williamson went number one. John Morant went two. Um, you know, you start going down that, you know, DeAndre Hunter at four, Tyler Hero at 13. You start going down that draft, and, you know, maybe that's a bad example because it wasn't like a star-studded draft, but there were, you know, Zion, as it turns out, wasn't the guy. 
And it wasn't the one you wanted. But Anthony Edwards, the next year, goes number one. LaMelo Ball goes three. Uh, Halliburton goes 12th. Um, Tyrese Maxey goes 21st. There are guys in every draft that end up being picked for an all-star game. It's the job of those guys, those scouts, Joe Cronin and his staff, to find him. Now, here's what Joe Cronin said at the trade deadline. He was asked, how soon can Blazer fans expect this team to be passable or be competitive? Um, not yet. I know we want to continue to grow and continue to progress. We don't want to take any more steps back. And that was part of our approach at this trade deadline. Like I would say, we were looking more to acquire a guy than get off of a guy. But at the same time, I don't want to speed it up too much. I want to give these guys a chance to grow and develop and, um, you know, not not overly swing here in order to chase a playoff spot that's unrealistic or a playoff spot that's going to get us thumped right away. I want to make sure this is a quality build that is very sustainable. I get it. He's saying, like, the timeline for Scoot and Shaden Sharp has to work for whoever they're bringing in. So isn't it more likely that they try to stay young and they try to pick two guys in the first round? I think so. And I, I think that might be another question for Hankins that you can say is, like, what is the direction of this team? Because nobody knows. Jody Allen's never spoken, and no one was, we'll never hear from her. Now, even if she does talk, she has yeah, lost. Why, why won't Jody Allen speak? That's That's been a thing I've been, you know, and Paul, I get it. You know, I was told uh, ultimately – by a Blazers executive that, you know, Paul, we all know that Paul was socially awkward and that, Spo- that that Paul, you know, struggled in public settings to be comfortable and that, you know, he may have been on the spectrum in some sort, some form, and people, you know, he just wasn't comfortable in that setting. And so we all kind of accepted that. And I've talked to him, I talked to him one-on-one twice where it was just he and I talking, and I found it that the conversations one-on-one were fine. They were, you know, we were, it was great. It, but Jody, she wants no part of that microphone. She wants no part of a one-on-one, a Q&A, uh, a small news conference. She wants to wear the jacket. She wants to kind of sink down in her chair. Like, why won't she accept that she has become the de facto owner of this team by being the de facto trustee of this team? I wish I knew, John. I wish I knew because she could have solved a lot of problems by speaking a couple years ago. And I think now even if she were to speak – She's lost all credibility and no one's going to take it seriously and nothing can change at this point. Like it's just it, the PR, it wouldn't even be a good PR hit because she hasn't done it in so long. So we don't expect anything. Um, so I, I think when you going back to the draft though, John, you talked about the four picks. That's the direction that Joe Cronin is going to have to figure out. Like, is he in charge? Are they really going to go with all four draft picks and be young? Or are they going to try to get just a young player or another player that can actually help this next season? it's one of those things where nobody knows the plan. And I think that does go back you know, I kind of say ownership is a little overrated, but this is where you want leadership and ownership is because they at least have a plan. We have no idea what the plan is here in Portland because there's never, it's never been spoken of. You and I, that's the biggest disagreement we have. You, you don't think that the owner matters. I think the owner is everything. And, and I don't think you go anywhere if the owner doesn't get it. Like if you have a business, it doesn't matter how much talent you have, how many smart people you have. If you have a lousy owner over the top of it, you are not going to maximize what you can do. And and the fact that it's not even that the Blazers have a lousy owner. They just don't have any owner. Like, there's no pressure. There's no downward expectation. There's no vision for what they want to be. And you're right. Like, every question I have for Dwayne Hankins or Joe Cronin 
comes back to like, you know, they're rudderless. Like, where are you going? What's the plan? How are you going to get there? Do you have a boat? Are you taking a train? Are, you know, like somebody needs to be head of household over there. The Blazers don't have a head of household. That's part of the problem. Leave it here. You got the BFT. So Anna and I were in a restaurant having lunch a couple of days ago. Not going to say where. It's not their fault. But there happened to be, it's pretty empty in there. There was like just about four or five tables. It was just a lunch spot really quick. We sat down. Um, it's the kind of place where a server comes over and hands you a menu just to set the scene. But there was a guy and a lady that were having kind of a work-related conversation at a table that was adjacent to us. It actually was two tables over. So there was an empty table, then them. And they had a laptop open on the table, which is fine. And, you know, you could just tell they were having a work conversation or maybe some creative powwow. And um, at some point, maybe 10 or 15 minutes after we ordered, um, the guy started a FaceTime call in the middle of the restaurant. He had the volume turned all the way up and... All of a sudden, we're just getting this blaring, somebody's having a conversation about something. I can hear every word. They're shouting <laughs> into the phone. They're trying to do this, like like it's the privacy of their own conference room. And Anna said to me, because, you know, she has more patience than I do, she says, you don't know what's going on. Maybe it's a life-threatening situation. And I was like, it's not a life-threatening situation. They're just rude. I think it's one of the most rude things to do, to have a public FaceTime conversation in a public space. And I'm always tempted in those situations to embarrass the people by just yelling out random things. You know, I don't know if they're talking to their boss or a coworker or a client or, you know, just uh, yell out, you know, put some clothes on. Or, I don't know. Like it. But have you ever been in a situation like that where somebody starts publicly FaceTiming? <sighs> Not like in a restaurant. Like I've seen people like walking down the street. That's fine. That's walk fine. down the street. I, I've We're seen, out in public. I've seen people at the Blazer game like FaceTiming, like not watching the game. They're just watching their phone and talking to the person there. But like I don't That's know. Weird. Not, not it is weird, but not like in a restaurant situation where it's very uh, loud. It's loud. Yeah. It, it doesn't. It. I feel like FaceTime needs to be more of an intimate situation. Like I can't be walking down yeah. the street doing it. I don't I just don't think you should use that setting to like conduct your own like conference. Like I you know, I hate meetings, you know. I I don't like meetings and let like let's get to the point. Let's not have a meeting about a meeting. Let's get to the point. I meetings are not my favorite thing. And so why would I be in your meeting? I'm I wasn't invited to your meeting. I'm not in your meeting. I think it's rude. Go find a coffee shop or some quiet outdoor spot or sit in your car and have that conversation like why are you holding that conversation again Anna's saying to me I said how annoying and she says yeah it is kind of annoying but she goes you don't know what they're talking about maybe there's a life-threatening like you know are you do you have O negative blood like I don't know that wasn't the conversation it felt to me I thought the conversation was rooted in youth sports it looked to me like you had somebody who was like a club basketball coach who was FaceTiming with, like, the treasurer of the club and had, like, the team mom next to him, and he's holding this thing. And you know what? I can't help myself in that situation. As I walked by him or leaving the restaurant, I just kind of looked at him like I was disgusted. And, and you know, and because I was. 
Why are you having a FaceTiming conversation in public? If it's a life-threatening situation, you know, I do it and don't care about the scoring you get from me. But if you are literally turning this little restaurant into your own conference room, uh, that's poor form, buddy. Find another place to do that. Next thing, next topic. Tipping's out of control. I'm a tipper, okay? I, I've worked in a service industry job. We all have. Stephen, I bet you have. Judah, I bet you have. We've all worked in service. Listeners, you have worked in a service industry uh, job where you have, you know, catered to people. It's an unforgiving thing. If you are in a situation where you are catering to people, you should deserve a tip. But if you're in a situation where you're just taking someone's order and then you're handing them a to-go bag, I kind of think this whole thing where we flip the register around and they say to you, you know, do you do what you're going to do here? It puts you in a really bad spot as a consumer. You got eyeballs on you from the person who just served you is going to hand you your food. You've got, you know, judgment from people all to your left and to your right are kind of going, is this guy going to tip? What's he going to do here? 18%, 20%. I I get it. Like I often look at the situation that the person who's serving me is enduring. And if they're enduring a situation where I go, "Hey, this is uh, not a humane job that they're working at or that you know, they really are providing service to people." Um, you know, I was in a Subway sandwich shop the other day. It's a great example. And the sandwich artist was alone. Okay? She's in the Subway, she's alone. And that's not a good place to be if you're a sandwich artist, alone, on an island with, like, five people waiting in line. Now, granted, when I got up for my turn to order, I wasn't just ordering for me. I felt really bad. I was ordering three sandwiches. And so I tried to make it as easy as possible on her. I didn't go all, you know, I'll have this and I'll have that and I'll have... I said, I'm going to do three sandwiches. They're all going to be the same. This is what it's going to be. And when I got to the end of it, I said, you're here alone, aren't you? And she said, yes. And I said, make sure you hydrate. And I have no problem tipping that sandwich artist. So I'm just, I'm not saying that I'm cheap here, okay? I, I tipped the sandwich artist because I realized that's not a fun place to be. We've all been there. I used to work, I worked at three different pizza parlors. I get it. But let's just say, you know, it's not that situation. Or there's uh, a place that's amply staffed, appropriately staffed. That becomes an issue in today's world. And they're literally just handing you your order, Stephen. Is it so wrong to just say, eh, this is probably not a tipping situation? Well, then where do you cross the line? Because if you have, let's just say I'm you're very getting, inconsistent. That's why. Yeah let's, that, let, yeah. let's say you're getting it delivered. Like all they're doing is driving your food to you. They didn't do anything. Do you tip eh, the driver? Like, I do tip the driver a little. I'm not going 20%, but I'm going, like, I'm giving a, a tip that says, hey, I appreciate you getting in your car and, you know, accounting for the fact that I was lazy today. But then why, like, then why wouldn't you a, tip? That's a service. But then they're handing you the bag. Why wouldn't you tip the people at the but restaurant? But that's a service. They're leaving. Like, the people at the restaurant, if they're coming to the table and serving, yes. But if you're just picking up a to-go order, that's where I kind of get in the situation where I'm like, eh, no, no. only... You know, I agree. 18, 20%. That's egregious. Like, l let's get that out of the way. If there's handing you the bag, that's not the tip. But I do think that you should give a buck or two. Okay. Here, here this happened the other day. Okay. Saturday, the seven year old and the nine year old and I went to a store that sells candy. It's like one of these specialty candy shops. They sell a whole bunch of candy bars. I bought a Reggie bar. 
Reggie Jackson on it. The two young girls got, uh, you know, some kind of candy bar. Um, the total was way out of control. The Reggie bar was two bucks. That's ridiculous. It used to be 50 cents. But anyway, the bill was like $6, okay? Cashier isn't doing anything. Never, no bag, nothing. I go and I put the three candy bars on the counter. The cashier flips the thing around. My choices are 15%, 18%, 20% tip. What am I getting here? She never got off the stool. That is a situation where it's a zero. I'm with you. I'm with you on that one. Now, I, because they didn't do it. Should I feel bad? Like, I I tipped her. I tipped her and I was resentful. I was muttering as I was leaving. (laughs) I think that's a you problem. Yeah, don't feel bad about that one. No. I mean, I, probably there is. are situations where I feel bad, like, uh, you know, being an Oregonian, I don't like to pump my own gas. So when people pump my own gas, I feel like I should tip up, but I never do. Like, that's one of those that I feel like I should actually do it, and I don't. I I pump my own now, but I, I often will. I, 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 I asked a guy. I told you, I asked a guy. I pumped up. I pulled up right, right after they changed the law. I pulled up at the gas station. I parked in the self-serve side of the pump. I got out of the car. I saw him. He was sitting on a stool. I said, hey, what percentage of people go self-serve versus full-serve? He said, 70% of the people go full-serve. I said, am I offending you or am I taking money out of your pocket if I go self-serve? Like, are you worried? Like, am I doing something wrong here? And he said, no, you're saving me work by doing that. And I said, you know, like, you're not like you're losing tips or anything. So I uh, I go self serve, but should but should I tip though? Should I tip if I do full serve? Because they're I, I doing don't... it for me. I'm not doing it. I'm just sitting here. You do it. You feels right for you in that situation. But I'll tell you this: my very first encounter when I moved to Oregon in December of 2002 came at a Shell gas station that was over off I-84 near the Lloyd Center. I had pulled off the uh, freeway to get gas. I had never pulled into a gas station in the state of Oregon as a driver and had somebody pump the gas. I had no idea that uh, people in the state of Oregon had somebody there to pump their gas. In California, you paid extra for that. You pay like 20 cents a gallon more. So all of a sudden, I realized, like, this guy's going to come pump my gas. So I rolled the window down, and I said to him, am I supposed to tip you? This is 20, 20 years ago. I said, am I supposed to tip you? And he said, most people do. <laughs> and so I did. Great answer. And I realized after that, I go, that sucker, he got me. And good for him. I'll tip somebody who shows a little ingenuity like that. That is a little great, bit. great answer there. I Because, you know, I've worked at Costco and, you know, a lot of times you have to, uh, you know, put people's groceries or their items into their car and they specifically tell you not to take tips. Now, I feel like that's a great situation where I could have gotten tips, but you're not supposed yeah. to. And some people still slip you something and, you know, you hide it, but... Yeah, no, I have a great answer for that guy. Love it, love that yeah, guy. Yeah, most people do. Most people do. All right, before we go today, I want to give you the crack of the bat because spring training officially started. Shohei Otani hit a home run. You're going to see it everywhere a million times over. But here's how it sounded in his debut with the Dodgers at spring training. Shohei at the plate, first spring training home run. Swung out, hit high in the air to left and deep. This ball carrying. This ball is gone. It is Dodger debut. Shohei Otani brings them to their feet. A two-run home run. That's what they've been waiting for. That's what the fans have been waiting for. Spring training started. The only regret 
is that John Sterling wasn't on the call because it would have sounded a little better. Swung on and drilled to deep right field. It is high. It is far. It is gone. Salardi hits a bullet over the right field wall and about eight rows back. Never nervous Jan Hervis. Salardi. Whoa, whoa. Salate. Whoa, 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 whoa. He homers to deep right. And the Yankees take a 2 nothing lead. We need John Sterling on an Otani home run before this is over.